This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. All right, you put us here. How are you going to get yourself out? You can bail out any time. How long you want to go, Rooster? I can go as low as you, sir, and that's saying something. If someone saw only one film on the big screen this year, Josh, that movie was probably Top Gun Maverick. But our mission this week is to name the 10 best films of the year. Does Mav have what it takes to make the cut? Well, he'll have to outfly the best of the best. Todd Field's Tar, the Daniels, Everything Everywhere, All at Once, Jordan Peele's Nope, and more. I'm going to borrow a Maverick phrase from the 86 gun and say the film spotting top 10 department regrets to inform you that this may be the last time Top Gun Maverick is referenced on this show. Joining us for our end of year roundtable, the Chicago Tribune's Michael Phillips. Call sign, fiddlesticks. And critic Mariah Gates. Let's go with zigzag. It's all ahead on film spotting. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to Film Spotting. Adam Kempinar here with Josh Larson and our special roundtable guests. It's really a tradition unlike any other. Michael Phillips, I'd have to check with the film spotting historian, but I think maybe continuously for 17 years. 18, no, 15, eight, maybe 1843. 15. That was a great first year. <laughs> you have been here for our year-end top 10 shows. It's great to have you back. Thanks for having me back. First timer, not first timer here on film spotting, but first time to be part of this show. We are so pleased to have Mariah Gates with us. Mariah, how are you? I'm I'm great. I trekked through the cold to be here, and <laughs> it was worth it. It's good to know that being on the show, doing Bodies, Bodies, Bodies review earlier this year with me, Mariah, didn't scare you away. It's really you know what? nice that to have you back. so much fun talking about that movie with you. It was a good time. Yeah. By the end of this big show, we will have all shared our top 10 films of the year, close to 30 movies in all. But we are going to devote most of the show to 10 that we're calling the films of the year. Just can't argue with it. We're 
we're naming them here. These are the movies that showed up on two or more of our top 10 lists. And then we will share our outlier picks, as we like to call them, the movies that were unique to our individual lists. And Josh, we have a little bit of a different format this year. Yeah, I think the motivation for this is probably the fact that we don't have as many consensus picks as we usually do in a given year. I think we'll see that there are a handful we do share in common. And from our voicemails, our guest critics will hear some more consensus as well. But at least at that top to build an entire show around consensus picks, it didn't make quite as much sense. We don't have, for example, one film that made all four of our lists this year. And there's only one film that made three of our lists, which gives you an idea of the variety we'll have. Yeah. And I'm sure listeners right now are trying to figure out what movie that is. And I'm going to say the movie that it actually is wouldn't be in their top three guesses. Not a shock, (laughs) but maybe not one of the first two or three that they would guess. Here's another way I think we will have some actual consensus, though, on this show. And I didn't do all the math, so I can't prove this. We will see as we go. But even though these titles only made two lists, and in that one case, three. I think with one exception, we all like all of the films that are going to be mentioned. So even if you didn't put it in your top 10, I think we're all favorable about these films. Again, with at least one exception that I know of, and I see Mariah over there just smiling a little bit mischievously. I know what movie you're talking about. (laughs) We'll get to it. (laughs) Yes, you do. Also on the show, listeners picks for the film of the year, a bunch of voicemails from our critic friends and the finalists for the 2022 Golden Brick Award. That's the award we give out annually to our underseen film of the year from a new or emerging director. But first, I have to ask, Michael. Yes. An unranked list what what are you doing? It was so great. I got <laughs> I, I changed editors. The the editor who really loved to enforce well, you know the the ranking in terms of preference on the top ten. I fought it every year, just 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 out of principle. And uh, and then he took the buyout last year, and uh, it was like, you know, I just thought it was time. And and Nina Metz, my colleague at the Trib, uh, had a uh, she filed her um, streaming. Mostly a top ten first, and it had no ranking and preference. And I thought, yippee! I'm doing it like she did it, and you know, life was good. And then, and then something else came along. I think it was the AP top twenty five poll, and they're like in preference order. And I thought, ah, uh, once again, I'm screwed. But uh, and I did it. You know, I just faked some sort of order of preference for them. And like I do on everything these days, I forgot it instantly. <laughs> so. Okay, so a little bit of a different sense of things for us as we were trying to figure out the structure of the show. We just had your titles. We didn't know how strongly you felt about these films, but if they're good enough to make your top 10 list, right. no matter what order you put them in, they must be pretty good. That's how I like to look at it. Okay. Yeah. Now, my question to you, Mariah, as we get started is, you sent me a link and I got to have a glimpse of your year in cinema. At the time, this was a week or so ago, it was at 326 2022 movies. It's probably gone up a little bit since then. I I don't know what my question is other than how. How do you do it? Yeah, (laughs) I think now it's about 350. And part of it was is holdovers um, from last year, festival films, things like Biba that didn't get a release, Strawberry Mansion, which was I saw last January, didn't get a release till this year, things like that. So that helped a very small amount. But really, I went to a lot of festivals online and in person this year and, you know, minimum 
for festivals, 20, 25 films. Um, I think I saw 65 films out of Sundance because it was online. So I would have seen more, but Robert made me go for a walk. He was like, you need to get out of the house, (laughs) which I mean, that's fair. But at the same time, I missed like three films (laughs) in that time. Um, But it, it is the most I've ever watched for a calendar release year. Wow. Mm. It sounds like if you look at a walk that way, you measure everything in terms of a movie length. Everything you're asked to do, you you pause and say, well, how many movies could I fit in? Everything's in a length of movies. Or like when I was in grad school about 10 years ago, uh, you know, I was on a tight budget and everything was, everything I paid for, whether it was a meal or coffee, was in units of uh, double features at the Castro Theater because they were $10. It was two movies for $10. And it was like, do I want to buy this? CD or do I want to go see two movies at the Castro for $10 and get free popcorn because my friend works there? It's like... So there you go. It really is just all about priorities. And Mariah has her straight. You mentioned Robert. (laughs) That's Robert Daniels, of course, the fine Chicago-based film critic. You are now Chicago-based. Can we say largely because of him and your relationship? Oh, completely because of him. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But I will say, I was thinking about this when I was walking here from the train is that um, of all the places I've lived, I've lived in San Francisco and Los Angeles a few times and Atlanta and then also in the middle of nowhere. But of all the like um, cities I've lived in, I feel like this film community embraced me the fastest. Mm. And I, I think part of it was obviously because I've been on film spotting since the film struck days. Um, so that a lot of people in Chicago knew me early, but even without that, and even without the connection with Robert, I do think this is the most welcoming film community of all the cities I've lived in. Mm. That's great um, to hear. The the publicists, the theaters, and then just the the people. Yeah. Your feelings on that could change by the end of this tape. I mean, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Enjoy <Robert>. it now. <laughs> Robert is someone we will hear from on this episode, though. I'm going to confess now, I actually didn't ask him to name his favorite film of the year. It was just to leave some audio with something embarrassing about you. So oh. <laughs> we, will, we will get to that. And we're going to go ahead and get the conversation started here. Our films of the year conversation going with... A couple of movies that are technically outliers in that they only showed up on one of our top tens, but I think everyone would agree they are among some of the biggest and most talked about, most acclaimed films of the year. I know we do all view these movies favorably, so we thought they deserve some time here right off the top of the show. As it turns out, Josh, they made your top ten list. Yeah, both of these are on my list, and they were both also hits with critics and also audiences. Nope, and everything, everywhere, all at once. And because of that, some of our favorite critics did call in to join the chorus, picking these as among the best of the year. Let's start with pop culture happy hours, Aisha Harris. Hey there, Film Spotting family. This is Aisha Harris. I'm one of the co-hosts of NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour as well as the author of the forthcoming book, Wannabe, Reckonings with the Pop Culture That Shapes Me. And my pick for 2022 is probably one that I'm sure a lot of people have already chosen, but there's a reason for that. And it's, of course, everything, everywhere, all at once. I have not had another experience at the movies quite like this. It surprised me. It moved me. It made me laugh. It made me cry. It made me think about my own existence and my relationship with my parents and all the sort of life paths and chosen things that I chose to do that maybe I wouldn't have in a different parallel universe. There's a great evil spreading throughout the many verses. And you may be your only chance of stopping it. Don't make me fight you. I am really good. I don't believe you. 
you know, I don't know what more you could ask from a movie. It, like Daniels really, really, <laughs> they tapped into something that I think will live on for a very long time. And to finally see Michelle Yeoh getting her due in a way that she hasn't before, it just truly warms my soul. And I can't think of a movie that has made me feel so many different things, everything all at once. Uh, and so that's my pick for 2022. Thanks so much and happy holidays and happy new year, y'all. Thank you, Aisha. Yeah, this is a movie that it somehow manages to live up to that bombastic title in all that it tries to encompass and the delirious way that it actually manages to pull it off. I love how Aisha says that she doesn't think she's ever had a movie experience quite like this. And you can tell there's still bewilderment in her voice, like it's still happening to her. I think that's what directors Dan Kwan and Daniel Scheinert managed with this movie. It's overwhelming in a good way. And a second viewing that I had probably a month or so ago, definitely wanted to see this one a second time. It helped me appreciate the intricacies at work behind all of this and also, you know, gave me more time to catch my breath. I had something of a bearing already going in. So everything, everywhere, all at once, my number three film of the year. I loved it that much. I had the privilege of being at the world premiere of this film at South by Southwest in Austin, the first real festival back since quarantine. And it played like gangbusters. Aisha said she never felt anything like that in a movie theater. I feel like I've had movies that have maybe moved me a little bit more, but in terms of the audience vibe, I don't know that I've been in a, an audience that was this like revved, be back in a theater, be back at a festival. The, the Daniels were there. Michelle Yeoh was there. She sat through the movie with everybody. So she really did get not just this adulation from critics, but like she felt the love in the mm. theater and it was magical to see. And, um, so weird. And I, I, I still have my little googly eyes that they gave everyone afterwards. <laughs> so I, I, it's not, it, wasn't, it didn't quite make my top 10. But in terms of movie-going experiences, it's in my top like three for the year. I think everybody got googly eyes on that film. I mean, yeah. whether they got them or not, I mean, that, that really was the experience. That was the same deal. I, I, it made my 11 through 20. Uh, and that film and Nope, uh, frankly, for me, both benefited the most from a second viewing. Mm. Like, no, I, I struggle with aspects of both of them for different reasons, very different reasons. But, um, but you just have to give it up for for people who just throw away the blueprints and, and go make their own kind of movie. You know, well, Nope is actually number four on my list, Michael. Right after Everything Everywhere All at Once. Here's Mikado Murphy from the New York Times. Hey, Adam and Josh, it's Mikado Murphy here from the New York Times. And did I have any trouble coming up with my favorite movie of the year? Nope. <laughs> I find that with the movies that I tend to love the most, the watching of them is only the beginning. And that is how I have felt so far about each Jordan Peele movie. So I watched Nope. I was fascinated by it. And I couldn't stop thinking about it. And then I watched it again. And it opened up another compartment in my imagination. And then I watched it again and so on and so on. It is spectacle and thesis and therapy. And it took me places that few films were able to this year. So there you have it. A nice big Gordy fist bump for Nope. Thanks, guys. Spectacle, thesis, therapy. Mikado nails it right there. I mean, how many other filmmakers could even manage that combination. And I feel like Jordan Peele has has done so in increasing scale for three films now. Nope's a spectacle, interrogating value of spectacles. It's a Hollywood hit that 
reorients our sense of Hollywood history. I think there's an essay to be written connecting this to the 2022 documentary Descendant, actually, that is just kind of a, a vague idea I have, but that would be quite interesting to pursue. And Nope is thrilling and it's funny. It, it does all of this at the same time. If you don't believe me and Mikado that Nope is one of the best films of the year, here's also our friend Chris Klemek. I could make an intellectual case for lots of films I loved in 2022, but I take my approach to criticism from legendary naval aviator Pete Maverick Mitchell, don't think, just do. That's why my favorite film of 2022 is Nope. It's Jordan Peele's Nope. I love it for the way it interrogates our need for speed or for spectacle, really the same thing. It's actually in conversation with the Fablemans in a way I'd love to discuss at length someday. Uh, I love this film for how it foregrounds a truly interesting, incredible family with a blood connection to the earliest frames of cinema. It gives those characters a relatable motivation not to slay the beast, but simply to capture it on film, to get the Oprah shot. He set it up, at least the right way. Maybe I'm talking rich and famous for life. How? How, how we put it out? Mm. Well, that's what I'm saying. We don't just go for the quick cash in, okay? We, we go to the most credible platform to do the story. What's that, like Oprah? Yeah, like Oprah, for example. After that, everybody won't in. This is a truly provocative, even insoluble film wrapped up in all the trappings of a completely absorbing thriller. It is the most imaginative blockbuster or, I guess, aspirational blockbuster in recent memory. Will I change my mind about this? Nope. That's my movie of the year. Check out my current slash eminent James Cameron scholarship on the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast at NPR. Uh, at smithsonian.com, also at vulture.com. Finally, coming early 2023, new episodes of A Degree Absolute, my podcast with film spotting trivia champion Glenn Weldon. Uh, look out for those. Thank you, film spotting, for a great year of shows. Happy holidays. Thank you, Chris, for that. I believe Glenn Weldon does always introduce himself now as trivia spotting champion Glenn Weldon. I love this pick. It was a contender for me because of what Mikado said largely. It's a film I've also been unable to stop thinking about, and that's the the magic of Peel. He's someone who does not make disposable films. He doesn't make these films that are fleeting, and that really matches what these characters in the film, of course, are trying to do in this world where everything is disposable and fleeting. Again, nothing about this film is. If it's even real. Most of the things in the world we inhabit these days, we're not even sure if they're tangible, if there's something that we can fully grasp. And I love that the movie is wrestling with that and wrestling with a whole lot of other things as well. And the scene with the young jupe under the table, looking through, peering, watching this whole traumatic incident unfold is one of the scenes of the year. Mm -hmm. God, yeah. And what a, what a, what a nervy first scene. I, I, it's probably my favorite first scene of any U.S. film anyway. And uh, I don't want to give it away for people who haven't stumbled into it yet. But I just, it's fascinating to see which films did find an audience in a pandemic. Everything from every, everything everywhere all at once to Top Gun Maverick to, to Nope. And I'm just thrilled, truly heartened that every film of Jordan Peele's even the even the comparatively narratively tricky and and difficult us and nope you know they turn out people people have invested in this guy they know they're going to get something they just haven't that doesn't follow the conventional three act structure that doesn't do a lot of things conventionally and and again thank god because everybody else as as everything is shifting underneath the entire industry uh, he seems to be someone who can lead us somewhere interesting my only contribution to this is that I love that he took the renaming of UFOs to UAPs in official government documents to heart. That's kind of a spoiler and also not a spoiler. <laughs> um, but, you know, I don't know if 
you guys are UFO nerds or not, but I am. And I was following the declassification of government UFO reports really heavily two years ago. And they really didn't say anything new except that the new phraseology preferred by the government is UAP, which stands for Unidentifiable Aerial Phenomena, which could be anything. Because right. they don't know if they're flying objects anymore. Could be anything up in the air. Mm. Um I thought that was so clever. Like, this movie's doing a lot with mm-hmm. a lot of really deep subjects, but something that kind of stupid <laughs> and fine and turning it into something really interesting, I lost my mind. <laughs> also, there's a needle drop um, to the album from, I think it's 1971-72, Exuma. It was in the trailer, and I was like, is he going to do this? And then it's one of the... Most interesting needle drops in a movie all year, and I hope everyone becomes Exuma fans from it because <laughs> you will listen to that album. Speaking of everything, everywhere, all at once, that album is every kind of music, everything, all the time. It is unlike anything. That's what he said. He wanted to make an album that was all music, and you listen to it, and you're like, I think you nailed it. Yeah, that just gives me another reason to want to rewatch this movie. I already badly wanted to do it. Now I want to hear that needle drop. Nope is currently streaming on Peacock and is available on VOD. Everything, everywhere, all at once is also widely available on demand. Let's go ahead and get then to our first batch of consensus picks. Again, movies that made at least two of our lists. And we're going to start with a movie that played various film festivals, including the Chicago International Film Festival here in October. Josh, it's your number 10 film of the year. And Michael, it also made your list. It's a narrative feature debut from a filmmaker most known for her documentary work. Yeah, this is uh, this is the film Saint-Omer by Alice Jupp, who's uh, French Senegalese. And this is her first narrative feature. It's I, I just uh, was astounded in, in a great way seeing this in the world premiere at Venice. It's a one-of-a-kind and I think really moving courtroom drama, among other things. It's about a novelist played by Kay Ijay Kagame researching her book, which is based on the Medea story of matricide and revenge. And the writer living in France has come to the little town of Saint-Omer to listen in on a murder trial of a young immigrant mother accused of killing her year-old child. And this is an echo of what happens in the Euripides play. Giap uses actual transcripts from a similar real-life court case, which she acknowledges she became quite obsessed with. And now, ordinarily, a movie about a writer or a reporter's life being changed by someone else's dire circumstances has a way of taking the focus off of where the movie really should be. But Saint-Omer is, to me, a total exception. It's almost magically right in balancing the two central women at the center and for me, just to this white man anyway, it steers completely clear of any really uneasy treatment of black trauma. I, I think it's a much, it just transcends all of those problems. And I just can't wait for Jeff's next feature. This one comes out, I think, early 2023. Mm-hmm. And while it's no rabble rouser and it's not a grabby sort of procedural, it's it's way too interior for that, I think. It's really special. And if I saw it completely jet-lagged, and whacked out by espresso and everything else in <laughs> Venice, you know, after after day six or whatever, and, and just completely transported by it. You know, I, I hope it can work for a, a fairly wide audience. I'm, I'm really, really, this was an easy top five for me in 2022. Well, I saw it, Michael, in the rush of year-end screener. Uh, you know, this was one, probably the most recently watched title that made my top 10 list. And 
it worked for me under those conditions, which aren't always ideal, shall we say, when we're trying to fit in all these titles people are pointing to as ones you really should fit in. I did mention it when Adam and I were talking about our Chicago Film Critics Association ballot choices, where we were leaning and mostly spoke about Guslaji Malanda's performance as the, the mother who's on trial here. But as I was finalizing my list and thought back on the film in general, it just grew in stature for me the way you were talking about, Michael, especially when you do consider... Melanda's character uh, in tandem, as you said, with this other woman played by Kagami. And you saw how their experiences are echoing each other in ways, the, their relationships with their mothers, even their their backgrounds, their connections to Africa. So the movie just grew, as I said, in more implications, the more I thought about it. It's, it is a courtroom procedural, but so much more than that. I mean, it's touching on I think from the the female perspective, particularly culture, colonialism, biology, and race, and how all of these things come to determine what women experience, and then how society is going to view them based on that. Because we're in the position, maybe especially viewers like you and I, Michael, of being more like one of those people sitting in the courtroom and who are mostly made up of white French-born people, is our impression from the film. And all of these other factors are at play in how the perception of the people in that audience, what that is, their perception is of the woman on the stand, but also, as you said, Kagami's character, too, and what she has experienced in her life. So it's just an incredibly rich film. What I think is so fascinating by both of what you guys mentioned is that there's an extra layer, I think, that's there that she is setting it up for you to think that these two women are similar because the white French people treat them as similar. They only say Africa. They don't say the country. Mm. They don't say which tribes within that country. Even though every time the woman on stand discusses her culture, she is micro-specific and they are macro. Mm. And I think what's interesting, one of the layers I loved in it, was that the woman watching it at the beginning of the trial feels that other that connection because they're both being othered the same way. But as she goes through it and as she hears the specifics of the woman's story, she realizes they actually have less in common, that they are being told they have all this stuff in common because of these surface level things. And I think that that journey is is the emotional journey she goes through by the end. Hmm. And I that when I got to the end and I saw that sort of fissure between the connection she you thought they were growing, that's when I was like how did she do that? How like, does she do it? That's what I asked the whole is, time. Yeah, part of did... it is the cinematographer who I'm forgetting. She, um, The way she shoots the the two women, at first you think they're the only two African women in the or Senegalese women in the courtroom, and then eventually they reveal the back of the mother's head, and then eventually they reveal the mother. And there's all these different ways that they use this camera setups to make you think that they're going to feel one way until it's completely different and until the two women finally look at each other and using more even than the dialogue using the camera mm -hmm. to set the, up the audience for one thing and then completely blowing it up at the end even though there's no explosions there's no like it's literally a court it's just people talking in a courtroom but because she uses the cutting and the cinematography so expertly mm -hmm. you, there's an emotional explosion that it's fascinating. I, I loved it. I had a moment or two uh, in a very different film, in the in the film version of uh, Till, where, mm. you, where you realize, you know, when you really get down to the actual minutes spent in that courtroom, 
And the camera is doing things you just typically never see in, yeah. a, in a Hollywood picture, which is just focus on, you know, uh, intently on, in this case, Mamie Till. And you just see simply a white hand enter the frame here and there. And you, and you realize five minutes into this, in this kind of massive scene, you don't need it. You don't need anything. You don't want anything other than what you're getting. Mm-mm. And it's just a, you need a director who's going to just say, to hell with it. <laughs> I'm yeah, not going to shoot coverage in quotes. You know, I'm I think not both be- those filmmakers trusted the power of the angles and the women at the center of their stories. And it's about centering stories. And I don't know, they're great films. Great and films. I, was, I really love to see Saint-Omer really be on so many different lists because it, if you read about the plot on paper, it doesn't necessarily sound like the most thrilling thing, but it's, it is. It really is. The cinematographer is Claire Mathan or Claire Mathan. I'm not sure which one. And real quickly to your point about the women having distinct stories despite their similarities, Mm -hmm. another wrinkle that I eventually realized was going on here is that the academic writing this book, you sense some moral dilemma within her about, am I colonizing this other Mm -hmm. woman's story? Am I exploiting this as well? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And you were right, I think, Mariah, especially to call out the shot angles. That's the thing that is really so pointed in what we see in those courtroom scenes. And what, to your point, Michael, I've never really seen before such deliberation and intent in terms of how close we get ultimately to the woman on trial here by the end and the different ways that we actually see her. And everything you articulated about their connection and maybe disconnection, Mariah, it's not something that the movie makes explicit mm-hmm. in terms of any kind of dialogue or, you know, it's out there in the narrative for you to latch onto. It is all in the cinematography. It's in the editing. It's in the performances as well. As Michael said, uh, Saint-Omer is in select cities in January. And that brings us to another one of our consensus picks. It's a film. Josh, you have a couple slots higher than me. You have it at number five. And it's Panah, Panahi's feature debut. It's my number eight film, Hit the Road. If you look at the generic plot description for this movie, the first sentence is potentially totally misleading, right? A middle-aged couple and their two sons embark on a road trip across the Iranian countryside. And even the beginning of the second sentence kind of sets you up for a certain expectation of what the movie is. Over the course of their journey, they bond over memories of the past. But then it gets a little bit more intense. They bond over memories of the past, grapple with fears of the unknown, and fuss over their sick dog, which they definitely do. That line, the poster even, the young boy, he's out the sunroof and he's got what seems like a big smile on his face. He's kind of yelling and his arms are wide open. It, it really does make you think this is going to be this fun kind of jaunt through the Iranian countryside. But then those, those fears of the unknown really do right. start to come into play. And actually, it, it sets up a running theme I did notice through my top 10 this year. I know I'm a broken record when it comes to sitting here and talking about our end of the year picks, usually I start to detect something that is common to these choices. And this might be the most straightforward of any of the films on my list or that I'm trying to kind of fit into this scheme. But it's really just about these movies that were so infused with an element of mystery, the kind of mystery we've talked about it with Nope, especially, but the kind of mystery that really rewards further scrutiny where you can't wait to watch it again, not only because you enjoyed it, but because you're looking for more clues. You're trying to unpack it all. Any good film should justify and reward 
multiple viewings like that. But again, these are films that almost require it not to follow it or understand it, but there's just enough complexity. There's enough ambiguity to it that you can't wait to dive back into this world. And no one's going to write any articles about hit the road that tell you all the plot or story points that you missed. Again, it's pretty straightforward in that way, but the mystery of what the parents are willing to do to sacrifice for their children. The, the mystery of any type of parent-child relationship is really at the core of this film. And there is a destination here. It isn't that jaunt through the countryside because there, there is somewhere they are going and that destination portends something very heavy. Panahi reveals more and more information as we go and we start to understand the emotions that are at play. And it's it's a little scary, even not not giant monster in the sky like nope, scary, but real world terror. And I think part of the surprise for me as well, watching this and being a fan of Iranian cinema, but having a lot to see. I'm sure anybody listening could point out many examples of films that go against this, but I'm so used to seeing these films that are very much about these explorations of truth and they're rooted in these stories of of structures of power and rebelling against authority and oppression and individuals pushing back against all of that. And I, I'm going to say this too, acknowledging that Panahi's father, <laughs> Jafar, you know, was sentenced in July to a six-year prison term. And we're also coming off, I, I just read this actually, thanks to a post, something you shared on Facebook yesterday, Michael, that Sheila O'Malley wrote about the Iranian actress Tarana Aladusti, who has gone missing and is now in prison. This is a movie that does have that playfulness to it and has a sense of humor and even an irreverence to the family dynamic that completely caught me off guard. And yet it is still digging into some of these same really important struggles. And my experience with Hit the Road was one where I was watching it thinking, okay, this is interesting. Again, it's surprising me a little bit just in terms of the the family and kind of even the way they related to each other and spoke to each other. But when is this going to get special? Because a lot of people are talking about this as one of the best movies of the year. And we could really probably dive into the moment where it's clinched for us. For me, even though there were there were moments that I was latching on to before this, there's this long take conversation between father and oldest son, who is doing most of the driving in this film, that absolutely floored me. Is it the one in the riverbed? Yeah. The, yeah. 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 That was that makes sense, but I think also there's a slyness to the mystery here where mm -hmm we might each have a different choice for that moment when the movie and to say click doesn't quite fit because this mystery unfolds in a way there's another film we'll get to that works similarly. You have a sense of what's coming or at least the weight that is going to descend on you from this movie early on. And it's not because of a plot reveal. It's not because of a specific thing that happens. It's just this hard to pinpoint existential sense of that this family is heading towards something intense. Mm -hmm. And it also, the movie personalizes, I think, all of those issues you were talking about, those larger societal issues. It makes brings them down. What does that mean for a family like this? What is it going to mean for their particular dynamic? And that makes it you know, somewhat universal, obviously, as well. It was when I came to during a marathon, like in the beginning of December, got to turn in my ballot watching. And of all the ones that I crammed at the end of the year, it's the highest on my list. It didn't quite make my list, but it is 
it really it hit me really hard. I think because we watched it back to back with No Bears, which was the mm. film his father made. Yes. Uh, just before, like also kind of, he wasn't supposed to be making a film and he made it by the border. And it was, so that movie is about being by the border. And then this movie is about going towards the border and, cro- and the borders of family. And the film's back to back, really. I was like, what? I also love Iranian cinema, but sometimes find it almost too intellectual. And I say that as someone who like casually drops silent film references in everyday <laughs> conversation. And what I liked about uh, this film was that it takes that same kind of themes and has like a more Western pop aesthetic to it, which probably yeah. is a terrible thing for me to say. But as an American, it, I found it all, like I understood the the filmic language a little better. Yeah. Uh, because it was coming really well because it was coming from a place that I can relate to a little bit more. Not that I dislike the other Iranian films I've seen. I love them. They're they're he- they're heavy, but I don't necessarily feel I can rewatch them all that much. The Hit the Road, I can imagine watching over and over because uh, there's all these different, like you said, the, the different mysteries that are out there, the different family dynamics, the stuff with the biker who, who's just like cheating, but it's like you kind of want him to cheat. You're like, you know what? <laughs> <laughs> you found a way to get ahead in this race. Go for it. The whole thing is it's so great. it's disarmingly exuberant. And yes. you think, and if it were, and somehow, if it were any more so, it would come off like it's lying. Yeah. You know, because, and this is kind of the, uh, again, this is a complete Western outsider's perspective, but it's, there's always another sense of tension and a source of tension and mystery in, in almost every kind of Iranian filmmaker's approach to anything is how how are they going to elide and avoid getting thrown in jail for right. what they're making? And how how oblique can you maintain the sort of political stakes that are going on with aspects of the story without getting in the trouble. And this, this was really, really, again, disarming. And, uh, and then when you kind of couple it with that, it is, it's a sort of antic road movie energy, you know, yeah. thanks to yeah. the kid. I mainly. mean, there's, yeah. there's a moment in this film where that sick dog is on his leash, dragging a plastic chair behind yes. it. And it finds the family <laughs> after being left behind because, the father wasn't smart enough to actually attach it to something that the dog could move. And that's one of those moments that is kind of horrific in a way and also hilarious. And yeah. th- this movie has a lot of moments like that. Panapanahi's Hit the Road is available video on demand. And next up on our consensus list of films here is a movie that appears in the eighth slot for you, Josh, and also... For you, Mariah, you're going to do the honors. Same spot. Um, this is it's known as Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio, but I think they did that solely because there was another Pinocchio out this year. Um, but I do want to make sure we mention that it was co-directed by Mark Gustafson. He did a lot of the stop motion. Um, he's a stop motion director. But Guillermo had been trying to get this made since I was in college. And spoiler alert, there are people who were born when I was in college who are now in college. So he's been trying to make this movie for almost tw- 20 years, I think. And like he made all these other movies in the middle, but like this is a passionate film. This is a everything that he loves, the darkness of of war, the way that people find some sort of humor in that darkness in order to get through it, the weird family dynamics that only make sense to the father and son or to a, a mother and daughter, pets. He always has weird pets. There's so much surrealism in this version. Specifically, Tilda Swinton plays twin spirits, I guess. One is a wood sprite. One is death 
kind of. Mm-hmm. Death is like a sphinx. And I was watching it, and my friend is a, has a PhD in surrealism, so she's always writing these like amazing newsletter articles that are way smarter than anything I could ever write. And I, w- I called her as soon as I got out, and I was like, you need to watch this movie because I need you to write about this because I know that it's interesting, but I don't know the details. <laughs> she did. Um, <laughs> her, her name is Sabina Stent. You can Google it. Uh, her piece on Pinocchio is amazing. But what I love specifically about this, not just because the stop motion is is so stunning, is it's mordant humor. I am such a fan of laughing at, like, dark, bleak things. That's why I like David Lynch. David Lynch's films are all comedies as far as I'm concerned, except maybe The Elephant Man. Um, Eraserhead is the funniest thing I've ever seen. Every time I watch it, it's funnier. This is a funny movie, and I was watching it with Robert at a press screening, and I kept laughing, and he was like, is this funny? And I'm like, yes, <laughs> that's funny. This explosion is funny. One of the characters I particularly loved is this, he only has two scenes. It's this like grizzled peg leg sea captain. Mm-hmm. Hey, excuse me, sir. Catania, do, do you go there? Can, can you take me there, please? It's just across the strait. That's not the sea out there. It's a graveyard! Do you know who voices the sea captain? Do not. The guy who plays Spongebob. Really? <laughs> yes. Tom and Kenny, isn't yes, that who it is? He pl- and he has this hilarious line where he jumps off the thing right before the, you know, the giant whale creature eats them. He also plays Mussolini. Spongebob is Mussolini in this movie. I feel like that's a selling point. Um, <laughs> but it's just got this... Stacked voice cast. Pinocchio is a new is a kid, so it's a new a new actor, Gregory, Gregory Mann. But Ewan McGregor is the cricket, and so he is good. not he's not the like wise, sweet cricket you expect. He's a world traveler, and he's just like he's not he's not putting up with anyone's crap. He just wants to write his memoirs, <laughs> but he reluctantly becomes a, a guardian. Kind of Ron Perlman is a fascist. Kate Planchet is a monkey whose name in Italian translates from Italian to English translates as garbage. (laughs) Spatzura. It's it's just, I don't even know. And then every time a new thing would come up, I'm like, how did he think of this? There's death bunnies. Like, I've watched it like three times already. And I, every time I watch it, I'm like, how? So I feel like if you really love passionate filmmaking, this is a movie that is like passionate filmmaking to the most extreme while also I think maybe being okay for children because it is rated PG even though there's like Nazi children. I don't know how he got rated at PG. I, I thought it was an R rated movie when I watched it and then I looked up the rating and yeah, I don't know. The ratings board is okay with Nazi children, I guess, but it, I'm going to make my nephew watch it. I think, <laughs> yeah. I think, so. <laughs> I think people's, I think people's uh, a sense of what ratings mean have, have, oh, have it's, has, it's, it's gone down the toilet in the pandemic. <laughs> people, people explode, you know, Christoph Waltz, like gets him, makes him an indentured servant. Yeah. It's, but you said uh, passion and you mentioned Del Toro's commitment to getting this made. It is a personal film. Yeah. It, there are those elements that come through as well. Yeah. And I think fans of his films will find little Easter eggs to his films. Fans of Pinocchio will find really I, I love like every version of Pinocchio. I've watched many. I actually have not watched because it's Tom Hanks that one yet. I'm saving that for like Christmas, maybe. It was always my favorite Disney. This is not like the Disney movie, but it was always my favorite Disney movie because it's so dark. 
Like he gets eaten by a whale. I watched that when I was like six, scared of whales and also fascinated by whales because he doesn't die. Same, the way that he takes that idea and turns it into something even weirder with this it's not even really a whale in this. It's like some sort I think of it's supposed prehistoric. To be a, yeah, like a dogfish is how it's identified, is it? which is another the creativity and envisioning that how is incredible. I just, and I loved it so much. Yeah, you're right. They're both dark, but in different ways. Yeah. Talking about the 1940 classic, one of my favorite movies of all time. That is scary dark, and this is humorously dark, yeah. as you were describing. And I just want to quickly call out when Adam and I briefly talked about on the show earlier, we we mostly touched on sort of the spiritual existential ideas at play. And I didn't really get to the aesthetics much yeah. at all, which this stop motion, which I'm a sucker for to begin with, um, I'm just going to call out one detail. And I, I bet everyone probably have a different favorite detail that they would pick from this movie, but it has to do with Sebastian J. Cricket, who is a wonderful voice performance, and just envisioning him, as you so said, funny. as being, you know, this kind of um, snot-nosed elite who doesn't really have time for any of this is such a great idea. Here, I could write my memoirs, and what a tale it would be. I had lived in a barrister's fireplace in Sardinia, sailed on the Adriatic in a fishing boat, nested one Perugian winter with an acclaimed sculptor. Stridulations of My Youth by Sebastian J. Cricket. He lives in Pinocchio's chest because mm -hmm. Pinocchio has been made from the trunk of this tree that has been chopped down. Geppetto has chopped down. Sebastian was already living there in the tree. So essentially that is where he's going to remain. He's not going to get pushed out of his house. But what does that lead to in terms of the visuals? Or what do they do with that in mm -hmm. terms of the visuals? Well, when Pinocchio goes to bed... Sebastian says goodnight, crawls into his chest and goes about writing his, not memoirs at this point, he's going to write Pinocchio's story, a little lamp. And there's this glow mm. that comes out of Pinocchio's mm. heart, essentially, as he's sleeping. I mean, just just to like think of that I and also, make it look so incredible. I also incredible. love like, that heart because his heart is so pure, right? Pinocchio is, is on the surface like this jerk kid, but he's just new. And he doesn't know anything. And he's new. And it's kind of... Guillermo kind of is this like kid. He's like, a, he's, I don't know how old he is, 50, something like that. But he comes across as this like kid yeah, who gets play, to play. Playfulness for he sure. He gets to play with cinema. And, but he, I think it's a real great plea for treating children with respect mm. because he, he gets into all these shenanigans, but he never gets into any of these shenanigans out of malice. It's out of pure curiosity yeah. and pure enthusiasm just unbridled for enthusiasm life. without knowing. Yeah. Not that he shouldn't do some of these things. And as a kid who was a bit of a mess and a bit of a liar, I killed some fish once. I still, because I lied about it, I still think about those fish. I read, That's part of why I think I always love Pinocchio mm. is like, I was a bit of a mess too. And and I, I love that the, the one of the story's main thrusts is don't kill that unbridled enthusiasm. Like figure out how to, you know, maybe shape it a little bit, but there's something good about being that passionate and being that willing to try all kinds of things. and That element, Josh, yeah. you mentioned the visual of the, the candle inside as his heart is really beautiful. And I think about just the elegance of a transition we get during the Carlo story when we're being introduced to, to him and what happened to him where we transition from dinner to bedtime. In, in, I, I can't even begin to really explain how elegant it is, but it's really beautiful. And the the touch of the cricket getting wet 
and shaking all the water yes. off his when wings. When I watched right? it a the second time, that. that's the one that stood out to me. Yeah, oh. that's, that's incredible. But I, I have a question for you. It's going to sound like I'm nitpicking this movie. I'm not because I'm a big fan of this film. But it struck me. So I want to see if I missed something, especially with two Pinocchio experts here. <laughs> okay. The first time, if I'm remembering correctly, I've only seen it once. The first time his nose grows, it's because he, he's talking to some people in the, the town. There's some chaos around him. And he says, I'm not a puppet. I'm a real boy. And his nose grows, of course, because it's untrue. But then later, I think this is the moment when the Nazi father and his kid come to the, come to the house. He wants to act like the other boy and he wants hot cocoa and he says he wants it because he's starving but his nose doesn't grow shouldn't it grow he can't because he, he can't, can't be actually starving. be starving mm. any more than he can be a real boy that that is a he very important it. question i, I thought he about believes that he's starving i didn't think about it that way i was wondering is he really enjoying this hot cocoa i did think about that adam so mm. you might be onto something i don't know mariah if you well, have Hunger isn't necessarily a biological function. Hunger can also be an emotional function. There you go. Let's go with That's that. That's my take. Let's go with that. And let's get, <laughs> like to, let's get to the next film on our list. First, we'll say Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio is playing exclusively on Netflix. We have now the first and the only documentary to make our consensus picks. Mariah, it's on your list all the way up at number five. But, Michael, it's also on your list. All the Beauty and the Bloodshed yes. by Laura Poitras. Uh, I, I, I liked Citizen Four, for which she won the Oscar uh, a lot, with some reservations. And I had no reservations on this one. I just think it's gorgeous. It's a mosaic portrait of the photographer, visual artist, and activist Nan Golden, who I knew criminally little about beforehand. Personal admission. And like St. Omer, uh, this one's partially a courtroom drama once we get to the part of the film where Golden's public protests against Purdue Pharma have brought the Sackler family, the family behind Purdue, to trial. The company and the Sacklers made millions and millions and millions upon millions on OxyContin and helped stoke the opioid epidemic. But All the Beauty and the Bloodshed, I think for me, is foremost really just an absorb, really absorbing look at Golden, the artist. She's a product of a repressed 50s and 60s upbringing, the sister of a really tragic suicide, and then as a photographer, a witness and a chronicler of an entire artistic scene, New York City, before, during, and after the AIDS crisis. And honestly, you don't know exactly where Poitras is going with this film, which is structured in seven chapters, but every facet of Nan Golden's life reveals something, I think, about every other facet. And I've read some complaints about the movie being over full or maybe a little indecisive about how to focus it or being two or three documentaries jammed into one, hmm. all of which are just more reasons why I love it because she pulls it off. Nan said, I think we should take these people down, but do you think my career will implode? And I said, probably. We need to demand that the Met Museum, the Louvre, the Tate, refuse donations from the Sacklers and take down their names. The rich people are scared that we're going to dig into the evil way they make money. I just think it's a great reminder right now of the necessity of activism, public activism on, on issues that really matter and how sometimes even a failure in terms of not calling 
people to account properly, legally, can still lead to at least symbolic or ethical victories where you get people's names taken off um, art exhibits or installations at all the major world museums just because it was the right thing to do. And I think it's a great time to focus on the right thing to do, um, period. And it's it's Poitras' best film by a mile, I think. And I just, I, I, again, it, it gives you real heart and hope for the future of the form because this, this documentary doesn't follow a form. Mm. Nan Golden has always been a favorite uh, artist of mine, I think partly because uh, coming as a queer person myself, uh, finding queer women in arts, in any form of art, whether it's filmmakers, photographers, fashion, and, and, and Nan kind of hits all of those places. She recently collaborates a lot with Rodart. I don't know if it's Rodart or Rodarte sisters, Kate and Laura Malivi. Um, she's worked with them on their photo shoots, but also she worked closely with the No Wave directors like Betty Gordon and Vivian Dick. And and I've loved those films, love Variety. All those all the most iconic shots from Variety were were on set, shot by Nan Golden. Her art about specifically battered women has been something that was really important to me uh, when I was younger and really learning about feminism and the various waves of feminism and the various ways in which artists. And- used art to be activists about subjects that were considered not important. And I think in the 70s and 80s in particular, you had a lot of women saying, like, we're being beat by men constantly. We need to do something. And one of those things was to show it. Um, As you said about her sister, a lot of what was happening with her family was the kind of stuff that was behind closed doors, you know, don't tell, don't let the neighbors know, I think is something that's repeated a lot. And I think that's something in American society, a lot of the things that are the worst aspects of society are not shown. And David Lynch, again, bringing him up, he's someone who likes to unearth a lot of that. Nan Golden was working right around the same time, unearthing a lot of that. And so I was stoked the minute I heard about this. What I thought was interesting, and the complaints about it being multiple documentaries at once, I think are missing the fact that every facet of what she does, her art, her community, the quote-unquote direct activism, which is really just direct activism, all of it is activism. Surviving that household was activism. Telling her sister's story is activism. Living with the people on in Provincetown is activism. It, it's all activism. I think especially coming in out of the repression of the 60s where people, you know, like straight sex was considered you know everything like all the hippies were like tits were everywhere but queer sex was still sort of keep it in the closet and so to come out of like the disco age and into the punk age and to say like i can be bisexual or i can be a lesbian and i'm going to be out and i'm going to show it in my art and i'm going to show it in my um just being I think is is something to celebrate and something that was activism. Her just existing, her just bringing those photos to galleries and saying this is art was activism. And and so I think anyone who's like, but it's about her family life and her art and her activism. It's like no, all of that was activism, just different phases of it. And I think the way that it's structured shows, like you said, it's inexorable. It's all connected. The men that I've watched it with, neither of them knew anything really about Nan Golden either. And then afterwards we're like, why didn't I know anything about Nan Golden? I'm like, sexism, that's why. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. I mean, add me to the list. It's not Nan Golden's fault. Yeah, (laughs) no, she's been doing the work. But but it's not even necessarily their fault. She's, She's still somebody who is so influential and so challenging of, of the norms and still so kind of marginalized. 
it's it's fascinating. So I love that this documentary came out one at Venice and it forced a lot of people to watch it who might not have watched it. They might have put it aside as like too political or too niche about a, a female artist that they don't really need to know about or, or what have you. And it made people seek it out. I hope more documentaries about artists like that break through in a way because they don't know they don't often break out like a movie like this. I wonder, is it the single most useless objection to a movie in general is too political, two words, yeah, too political. I know. I think <laughs> I, I, of all times, you know. And I heard that at Venice and before I saw it because I actually missed it at Venice. A tough ticket there. Yeah. Especially tough ticketing system as as a lot of these in person festivals. <laughs> yeah. have but you know, it beat Tar, it beat uh, Banshees of Inisherin, you know, and rightly so in my view. So it's just it's just um, she was of her time, just like just like you know, countless people who worked and lived and you know fought and were exploited and beaten uh, and and survived. Hopefully, uh, in that time, but she also was. You know the one chronicling it, and mm-hmm. and that's why that's why it all belongs in this movie. Yeah, yeah. I haven't read those criticisms, Michael, just because I haven't read anything about this film. I would like to. I'm not surprised if you were pitching it as you've both articulated with the expanse of it, everything this movie is trying to cover. Looking at it on paper, or just in a pitch, it it wouldn't seem to work. And yet, I'm with you completely that that it does. You you touched on these things, but Nan Golden's life, her career as an artist. Her family history, the opioid epidemic, the AIDS crisis, of course, the Sacklers, their personal history, and the Sex, story of sexism New- and the sexism art world. Sexism and the art world. <laughs> and you could go on and on. And the story of New York, as you touched on, in the 70s, 80s, 90s, and that artistic scene. I, I think you've said it better than I'm going to hear, Mariah, with that notion that it's all through this kind of lens of activism, but maybe in more direct terms, less poetic than than you, the, the form is also that all of these things, including what it's ostensibly about, the opioid epidemic and, and Nan Golden and her work, her activism there, it's all through the prism of her experience. Mm-hmm. All of these things are through the prism of her experience, which are all legitimate and powerful. And there's another through line, too, I think, which is an idea that does come up explicitly and that it's, it's named by various people in the film at some point, which is shame. Mm-hmm. This idea of shame over something that is viewed by others as something that you're suffering from or you're you're afflicted by it 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 carries through all these stories, including the story of what was all kept secretive about mm-hmm. her her family life and her sister. All the beauty in the bloodshed is currently in select theaters. You can look for a digital release early in 2023. We've got one more consensus pick before we get to our golden brick finalists, and this is a film that Josh you have. At number seven on your list, I think that's way too low. So I'm not even going to get into chastising Mariah and Michael. Let's go ahead and just hear the choice. Hey, Adam and Josh. It's Isaac Feldberg, film critic and reporter for RogerEbert.com, The Playlist, Letterboxd Journal, and plenty of other fun places. It's been a great year for me at the movies, but my favorite film of the year has to be Park Chomwick's Decision to Leave, a beguilingly romantic twist on detective noir that finds the filmmaker indulging in a lot of the same aesthetics of deception and desire that have fueled his previous thrillers, but his approach this time around to the story's tone, which is very mysterious and ever-shifting, feels both unusually contemporary for him and more theatrically lurid. Uh, It's a beautiful movie to watch, striking to consider in terms of the performances by Park Ha-il and Tong Wei as a detective and a murder suspect to whom he's continually drawn. 
uh, Park revels in this mood of ambiguity and abstraction, all of these linguistic contradictions, romantic ellipses, and striking mirrors coming together to make a film that could be considered his twist on something like Vertigo, but feels more authentically his in its maze of obsession and obfuscation. It is strangely one of the more romantic films I've seen this year and one of the most tantalizing to consider after the fact. Thank you, Isaac. So this is my mystery movie that's actually a mystery. It's my number three film of the year, Park Chan-wook's decision to leave. For most of its running time anyway, it seems like it's a fairly conventional crime story or we believe that we're going to get certain facts revealed or we're going to understand certain characters' motivations because, again, we've seen these types of stories before. We've seen these types of obsessive cops before. We did our top five cops in love on film spotting when we talked about this movie. Isaac, really nailing why this movie made my list and why it's so high with terms and phrases like ever shifting and reveling in the mood of ambiguity and abstraction. This is really a film, like I said, that isn't going to, you think it's going to tell you some truths. And it feels like every time something is actually revealed or you feel like you have a grasp on something, a whole new door is open and you're, you're then kind of grasping, trying to then, contemplate the implications of what these new relationship dynamics mean. Stylistically, it's one of those films where my notes are filled with random phrases and lines like, how about the eyes focusing like a shutter after the eye drops? The cinematic language that Park Chan-wook uses even when a character, that recurring motif of the character, trying to see more clearly and, and soothe his eyes a little bit. The, the framing in a shot between the two characters at the sink and the pictures on the wall, the eyeball motif, lenses, binoculars, the cut from binoculars to actually being then inside the room as he's having a conversation with her, so inventive. And all of these side-by-side views and the different layers of vision, the mirrors, Isaac mentioned that as well. But it's a film that's so... St- stylistically beautiful, and yet you're never suffocated by it. It, it only adds to the complexity and all these layers of, of truth and reality, the, the way everything seems to be ever shifting. I think it helps that the color is so striking here in, in every shot. I don't think you'll find a single frame of this film in which the details of design and lighting and composition haven't been intricately considered, but it's also such a sensual movie, which is ironic too when you consider that I believe anyway, we don't actually get any type of physical real embrace or any kiss between these characters until very, very late in the film. So actually it builds up this kind of romantic longing because of the the way it's withheld from us. And then there's the sensory element too, where there's so much that goes on in the film that deals with taste and with smell and with sight, obviously, as we've touched on. So Decision to Leave is one of those movies, you know, I like Isaac's word. He he talked about it as being beguilingly romantic. I've been trying to find the right term to sum up the enigmatic beauty of this film. And I keep falling short. And that's probably a reflection of my limitations as a critic and thinker. But it's also because of just how great I think Decision to Leave is. Well, and maybe in what a unique film it is and approaching these ideas. How many times 
and I've done this, will we describe a Park Chan-wook movie as Hitchcockian or his Hitchcock riff? And maybe this is just what he does. And there are moments where he's at the level of Hitchcock, you know, and this is for me, maybe the closest he's come of the movies I've seen. I, I can vary pretty wildly on him, but I've always appreciated the technique. You talk about Adam. It's certainly eye-popping here. This is a movie that includes a shot early on from a corpse's point of view, what that corpse is, is quote-unquote, seen, and an ant scurries across the open eyelid. <laughs> uh, those are the levels of inventive detail going on here. But I think the reason it's on my list, and I mentioned this when we reviewed it, Adam, is that this is the – it's that skewed romance. This is the Park Chanuk film that achieved a certain amount of tenderness and genuine affection that – exists in some of his other movies, to be sure. But here, it was at the forefront. This is a detective in love movie, except that for many of those, the love element is one factor. It's maybe on equal footing with the mystery or the plot devices or the twists. And in Decision to Leave, I think that emotional, it's the core, mm -hmm. that element. It's what this story is ultimately about. Attention is paid to all those other things, very impressive attention, but still the core is this genuine emotional element that comes to the forefront and is why, for me, it's one of his best films. Mariah, did you write about this film? Uh, I did not, and that is because, to your point, it is very Hitchcockian. And I've said this probably elsewhere, but not on such a large platform, so I'm afraid I'm going to get hate mail. I have seen every single Hitchcock film except for the like silence that aren't available so that I can have this opinion and mean it with my whole chest. I'm not the biggest fan of Hitchcock. I admire. No sin there. No you sin know what? There. I love Shadow of a Doubt. I love Under Capricorn, which is a much derided film. But in terms of like the clinical um, sort of precision of his films and the just abject voyeurism turns me off. I really don't like Vertigo. I've watched Vertigo probably 10 times. I've seen it on 70 millimeter. I keep trying to love it. And I just, I don't like it. I really don't like it. And I didn't hate this film. I've seen another one of his films that I really didn't like. This one, I, I admired the filmmaking, but it's still kind of the same reason that a lot of Hitchcock leaves me cold. It was the same thing. So that's why I didn't write about it. But see, I, I thought find you it, were going to say well, see, but you that's why you should it, write about it. Yeah, I, mean, I don't find it Hitchcockian <laughs> at all, actually, because you don't like Hitchcock, and this film is Park Chanuk doing his own thing. But you're yeah. suggesting he he is he is aping Hitchcock to some extent in in a way that maybe doesn't work. I think work so, for you. and it's well, the it's, kind of stuff that I don't. But also, what I found with Korean cinema in particular that I found challenging, and I need to just watch more to get over this hump, is that. There is a penchant for mixing melodrama into everything. And and I love a, a good melodrama. I love, you know, like Random Harvest, what have you. But I love like straight everything is melodrama. And I, I find it jarring to go back and forth between the the noir of it, which is really dark and seedy, and then the melodrama. And I don't know that it works for me. I don't – it feels too contrasting. And Robert and I got in a huge fight. We saw this at a festival together, and he loved it, and I was – picking it apart and then we went to sleep because it was like three in the morning <laughs> and um, he's I think he's watched it again since and I haven't and maybe I need to return to it because people love it and I do think it is in terms of like technical direction mm -hmm. and yeah, and plotting impeccable. one of the most intricately made films I just it just didn't work for me yeah I don't know how much I mean I I, I, I liked it a lot but I liked it for in, in a way that I, I felt a little bit of a uh, kind of a roiling guilt <laughs> <laughs> around the two-thirds point, like, uh, 
is it just one of those stories again told beautifully you know kind of a uh, and I, I what i mean by that i guess is that if you call it hitchcockian you're really just you're really only calling it vertigoian yes <laughs> and because i mean hitchcock whether you like him or not i think he can say that there's not a hell of a lot of uh, obvious overlap or stylistic similarity or certainly narrative similarity between Shadow of a Doubt, Under Capricorn, Vertigo, North by Northwest, and, you know, The Birds. You know, I mean, not really. I mean, he's he's an interesting filmmaker just on that level and, you know, arguably great if you want to argue that point. But I think this film feels, it does feel like a, a wonderful gloss on the, on the old romantic obsessions involving detectives and the elusive, um, not quite human female character. <laughs> and that, and that is a, you know, it's territory that I don't want to revisit all the time uh, at certainly not at any less of a level of craft uh, as this film, but I did, you know, I, I, whatever, I guess I was just a whore for 35 at the music box. You know, I saw it on 35. <laughs> I saw it on 35 millimeter at the music box. It was, you know, even, even though they've improved the sound system at the music box here in Chicago, uh, substantially just recently uh, the ideal viewing experience at the music box is seeing a film in 35 with this kind of a quality print that decision to leave was on uh, with subtitles so you don't have to necessarily get every word of the original language mm-hmm. so anyway I, I i think on a surface experiential level i kind of just felt i will say it is the greatest use of uh wallpaper in a movie all year yeah, that's I part really of the color loved, design I yeah. you were talking paper. about, Adam, for sure. <laughs> Not since Jacques Demy, right? Yeah, it really was. I was like, can I get like your art director's number and where did he get this wallpaper? Can we get that get as wallpaper? a new CFCA category? Best, Best use of wallpaper? wallpaper. I think, I think we should. End yeah. of year awards. I like it. Well, I said I knew there was one film Mariah disagreed with me about that we didn't have consensus on. We can now add two to the list. Decision to Leave is currently streaming on Mubi and available to rent VOD. Okay, we're halfway through our consensus best films of the year. We're going to take a quick break to announce the finalists for our annual Golden Brick Award. Josh, will you please briefly set up what the Golden Brick stands for? For sure. Yeah, I think we pick up new listeners with these top 10 shows each year, so this may be unfamiliar to some folks, but we like to honor a filmmaker and a film from someone who is new to us, we like to say. Often it is a first film, a debut feature, but sometimes the filmmaker has made maybe one other title. But we also are particularly attentive to the ambition, particularly the formal ambition, I think. Uh, It really shows us something in the choices that were made or the vision that it has um, that stands out. And then we do try to factor in our excitement to see something next from this filmmaker. You know, what might they go on to do? So this year, we do have six finalists, six films that over the course of the year, we mentioned a number of titles that had potential for the Golden Brick, but we have narrowed it down to six. And we did ask the members of the extended film spotting critical family to go ahead and rank their favorites. So these are the folks at the Next Picture Show, Matt Singer and Alison Wilmore. Michael, Mariah, you guys are both a part of this. And then we'll have listeners vote as well Throw all that into the mix, and we'll end up with our Golden Brick winner. But here are our finalists for the 2022 Golden Brick. David Siv's Bad Axe, Sarah Dosa's Fire of Love, two documentaries there. The previously discussed Hit the Road from Panah Panahi, Nikyatu Jusu's Nanny, and We're All Going to the World's Fair from director Jane Schoenbrunn, and then another one, the last finalist, is a Best Film of the Year pick from our production assistant, Betty Lavendero. 
Hi, everyone. This is the current film spotting PA, Betty Lavendero, and I'm so excited to be sharing with you my favorite film of this year, which is Charlotte Wells' directorial debut, After Sun. I had another film at the top of my list for a majority of the year, but something in my gut was telling me to wait to see After Sun before finalizing my pick, and I'm so glad that I listened to my gut because I haven't been moved by a film like this in a really long time. Charlotte, I think, has a beautiful, tense, quiet script in front of her with this film, and it allows us to really relate and feel with these two characters, a young father and a young daughter, in ways that is sometimes difficult to portray if you haven't had a personal connection to that experience before. But there were moments in this film that I saw my own identity and my own life in, and I just think that takes so much talent as a screenwriter, and I'm so excited to see what Charlotte brings to the world of cinema as a female writer and director in the years to come. You know, I want you to know that you can talk to me about anything. Whatever parties you go to, boys you meet, drugs you take. Dad! Oh my God, what even is that? These are my moves. No, <laughs> oh, that's so embarrassing. That's not embarrassing. I just cannot recommend this film enough, and if you haven't checked it out yet, please do before the end of the year and support your local indie theater and have a great rest of your holidays. Thank you, Betty, for that. And thank you, Betty, for all the great work you did for us this year. Spoiler, this is not the last time After Sun will come up here in this episode. Listeners, if you heard those choices that Josh went through and thought, I have so much viewing to do, that's fine. You have several weeks to vote in the poll. We encourage you, as Betty did, to see After Sun, to see all of these movies if you haven't had a chance yet. Go to filmspotting.net slash bricks, and you will find the poll where you get to vote for your favorite. You can also see not only the list of titles, but where they are currently playing, what platforms, and your vote will count just as much as my vote or Michael's or Mariah's or Josh's. You will help us choose the golden brick winner for 2022. Wait a minute, wait a minute. They have the I know. same weight? Well, as we, What? What kind of goofy de- that's just the, exercise in democracy is this? That's the kind of show we are, Michael. <laughs> that's the kind of show we are. We do typically announce our brick winner in January during our year-end rap party. And this year, that, of course, is going to take place live in Brooklyn at the Bell House, Saturday, January 14th. More information about that live show, we hope to see so many of you there, is available at filmspotting.net slash events. Also, on our events page, Josh, I know you already had the great opportunity to hang out with so many film spotting listeners during a trip to London with your family a few years ago. Well, I'm going to be in London coming up here just after Christmas, and we're hoping to do another film spotting meetup. Probably, I, I, did you guys do it at the BFI South Bank? I believe we did. Yeah, yeah. it worked great. Well, let's just say we started there. Okay. Yes. Uh, it ended up being <laughs> a, a long night, longer than one I could probably pull now at my advanced age. I'm uh-huh. going to try to track down the... Um, the Euro Disco we did finally close out at and get that name to you, Adam, so you can you can go with your group. Wow, I know my night is going to be so much more boring compared to yours, Josh, and everyone should just preemptively be prepared for disappointment. Filmspotting.net slash events. You can RSVP. Hope to hang out with many Filmspotting listeners then. Hello, Adam and Josh. This is Ryan McQuaid, the executive editor over at awardswatch.com. 2022 has been, in my opinion, One of the strongest years in recent memory, with so many films that continued to linger in my head weeks after I saw them, like Decision to Leave, Nope, The Banshees of Inishirin, Bardo, 
Women Talking, Bones and All, After Yang, After Sun, and many, many more. But the one that stuck with me the most this year was Todd Field's Tar, a deeply haunting, hilarious, complex examination of an artist's abuse of power and her struggle to keep it all together while everything around her is crumbling before our very eyes. Led by an all-time performance from Kate Blanchett and an equally fantastic Nina Haas, Phil's long-awaited third feature questions everything, answers little, and leaves us wanting and wondering more than any other film from this bountiful year. It's a wild experience. Thank you guys so much for everything you guys do, and can't wait to talk to you guys in 2023. Bye. We are getting back into our countdown here with that voicemail from friend of the show, Ryan McQuaid. We are not ready to talk yet about Todd Field's Tar, but it is time to talk about the film, the only film that made three of our four top 10 lists. And let's be honest, we, we paired this with that Tar voicemail because I'm going to assume that everybody listening thought Tar might be the film that made at least three of our lists. Alas, it was not. Michael, you're going to do the honors on this pick. It made, as I said, three lists, the only movie to do it. Mariah, it's your number 10. Josh, it's your number eight. You didn't rank yours as we discussed earlier, top five. Michael, but it's top five. Okay, so you still have a top five. Tell us the film. Marcel, the shell with shoes on. <laughs> okay, the stop motion mollusk, an animation star created by Dean Fleischer-Camp and Jenny Slate. Uh, you know, the short started and um, stopped popping up on YouTube in 2010. Two sequels on the short front, two picture books, and now the feature um, that came out last summer. And there's a new relationship afoot in this film, uh, the one between Marcel, voiced by Slate, and Nana Connie, uh, voiced by Isabella Rossellini. And it's just a wonderful two-mollusk relationship. You know, the last two uh, in this community – now of two, they used to be surrounded by family, friends, uh, all living in this human-scaled house. And Marcel wants to find out what happened to everybody. So he elicits the help of his unseen documentarian, played by Fleischer Camp, and the movie kind of busts out into the wider world in pursuit of answers. Tell me about what's life like now. Uh, me? Uh, I appreciate its different beauties, but it's, it's not the way I would have done things if I was still in the group. But they're not here, so that's why I have the electric mixer. Ready? Honestly, I have no idea why this movie works at all. And without <laughs> someone as, as just personally beguiling, to use a word that's already been applied to Decision to Leave, uh, different kind of film, uh, as Slate uh, at its core, I think, I don't know if it would, but I, I was just so hardened this year to learn from so many different people who were really loving the shorts right away from 2010 and also people who just, you know, didn't know, but just heard that it was good. Um, all these different folks coming to the film, uh, and coming away with kind of a much needed spiritual tonic, really. It's an ode to the power of positive thinking, I think, amid difficult circumstances. So, it, you know, there's plenty of, uh, unfortunate allegorical stuff we're all carrying around from this damn pandemic, but I just really love it in a way that I guess I guess relates to me loving the kind of stop motion animation it's into, the kind of emotional realism it's unafraid to embrace. Uh, I think it's actually teaching 
particularly children who watch it, uh, how to be in the world in a way that most animated features just don't give a rip about. You know, I, I think it's you know because it's about all the stuff that we prize and we tend that we tend to rely on with words like kindness and empathy and all that. But I, I don't know this 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 kind of walks the walk. You know, not just talks the talk. And I uh, I don't know. I'm really. Um, and I walked out of it, I just sort of like like supremely happy, you know. And I, I, I if you're going to make a feature length movie out of a, a bunch of YouTube successes, wait, you cinema know. can do that? <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I forgot. I think. Yeah. Oh no, right. I mean, to that's... your point about it with children, I saw this first with with Robert during South by, but then we saw it at the Music Box during the Chicago Critics Film Festival, and it was I want to say sixty percent to seventy five percent children, huh. and. I, I actually love watching movies with children because children tend to be vocal in their love of something in the moment, even if they're in a theater. And um, highly recommend if you're feeling cynical about the movie going experience to be in a that kind of experience with children because obviously also children can be annoying. But this movie beguiled them. It moved them. You could see the wonder. You could feel the wonder. And to your point about it teaching, it reminds me of like the best of Mr. Rogers in that Mm -hmm, he was mm -hmm. unafraid to tackle difficult things. Yes, This film tackles dying. It tackles loss of community. It tackles isolation and loneliness and all of these things with grace and with being unafraid to tap into how it makes you feel and how you can use that as a tool to grow. I think Nana Connie gives Marcel a beautiful speech about how moment the hardest moments are the ones that help you grow and that you should not be afraid of that and that you should not cling to the past if moving forward is what's going to be the best thing for you to grow. And I don't think a lot of kids' movies do that. The, the best ones do. Best ones and do. I think you have another one that you're going to talk about that I think also does that. Hmm. But, um, tar. Yeah. Yes, Tar. tar. No. <laughs> but um, I, I, I also left it feeling like some monochrome of hope Hope for cinema, hope for humanity, um, hope for Isabella Rossellini to like continue to live forever because her <laughs> latter career is everything I w- would hope it would be. Um, and it's just a beautiful film. Beautiful film. And yeah. I think some people maybe thought it was twee. And I was like, that's not, a, this is not twee. This is just hopeful. Yeah, I, I love it. Hope. Yeah. And it's also just, I mean, it's, it's just, it's it's hugely funny when it's trying to be. Yes. Because, really I mean, no, yes. no one can toss off like like fifteen throwaway lines in the space of ten minutes. Just just you know, as as Marcel's kind of going around, you know, just explaining. Well, this is my bread room. You know, the bedroom with well, you know where, where it's like two slices of bread. You know, um, and, and and just yeah. she is just a, a, a wizard with a little vocal intonation and detail, and 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 there's really nobody yeah. like. Jenny Slate's voice. There's no voice like that voice. That's and, why I I voted for her in the Chicago Film Critics Association for a Best Actress. I mean, mm. it's that crucial oh, I like to... It. I, like it. I love thinking about vocal performances in general that way, but it's so crucial to this movie, to this character. And I left feeling, this is why it's at, what, number six, I think I said on my list. I left with a very similar feeling, and I wondered, okay, is this just because this movie is meeting me now and this is what i need but then you hear from someone else who had the same experience and someone else who had the same experience saw it in different contexts Mm -hmm. they're in different places of their lives of course we're all in 2022 and yes as has been the case for quite a few years now we need more things like this than ever but still 
the fact that it's showing up on lists like this at the end of the year, I think it is more than the moment. It is doing something that will be lasting, and it is offering something that is always going to be needed. Mariah, your your Mr. Rogers comparison is spot on. Had not occurred to me before. Um, the other thing is you were talking, I thought, I wonder if Marcel's a little bit of a Pinocchio figure <laughs> in a way. A little bit. The way uh, Marcel experiences the world. But also the way kids experience this film, I think, is crucial. And Michael, as you were describing, you know, the way so many animated films for children might operate, not all of them. I'm a huge fan of the genre, but I think a lot of them that we see these days are so manic. This has been the case for many, many years. But kids go into something like Marcel the Shallow Shoes on, and they're given space to just breathe. The movie is not overwhelming and inundating them. And not only is it giving them that space, it's telling them that this space, this pace of living is okay. It's, you know, you can you can chill for a little bit. And it's encouraging to see young audiences responding to that. Not that it has to be an either or thing, but allowing for this sort of experience for the movies as well. And also, not just kids, for all also, of us. Also, audiences of every age, I think with a film like this, they're, they're actually, they are given a pretty notable break from even the best of Pixar, which is, which is you know, fiendishly effective in giving you an emotional wreck of an experience, you know, yeah. and it's, and, and in ways that can be really remarkable. And there's really none of that machinery going on here at all. You, people are, I, I think people find that the film sneaks up on them emotionally at all, at all different times, you know, it's not like, and I like your point about, I love the idea of voting for Jenny Slate for best actress. Um, there was a moment and, and you guys know I had a problem with Bing Bong and Inside Out, mainly because of the vocal care. Michael, we were doing so well. Now you got to come no, after no, Bing Bong. I'm going to, look, I got to give it a break from Raiders of the Lost Ark with all of them. <laughs> But but you know Richard Richard Kind's performance is you know is the kind of vocal work that I just I just chemically reject emotionally because it it is trying so hard to make me feel and there's something so great about the way Jenny Slate who's kind of equally canny and effective about bringing a character to life vocally and I'm not dissing Richard Kind's basic skill level but but it's a different approach it's just like this this little let's just make this moment small I mean it's just it's it's a it's a it's a tiny protagonist let's make a lot of moments small <laughs> and and the, and that will add up to something that we're still talking about at the end of the year where'd you get the rope this uh it, I'll, I'll show you I come to the bathroom I get these curly hairs they're the strongest because you have to uncurl it but um, then you can see it's really long and strong. <laughs> what are you laughing at? We call them hardy hairs. <laughs> well, I'd make a bad joke here about me apparently being allergic to shellfish or maybe positivity and kindness that it didn't make my top 10. But I, I went for this film as well. It just didn't make the cut for me. And you made a comment about this being a very different film than Decision to Leave. I, for one, am ready to embrace <laughs> Park Chan-wook's mollusk phase. I, I, why not? I, I'm sure he can mine that for something interesting, but I'm with you. And this is going to be the second time now, Josh, I have teased this. And then the payoff is not going to be worth it on our live show, The Rap Party in Brooklyn on January 14th. But there is a single line and a line delivery to your point about just the the little nuances of, of her voice and, and what she can do with a line reading that may not seem that hilarious. And she makes it hilarious. There's a single line in this film that is a contender for my funniest moment of the year. And there's probably 10 or 12 of them that you would be thinking about right now as that contender. I'll, I'll reveal it later. 
yeah, January 14th. I think maybe a moving moment could come from Marcel sure. the Shell as well. So mm-hmm. Marcel the Shell with shoes on is available on most platforms, video on demand. Next up is a movie that I have as my number five film of the year. And Josh, you've got it all the way up at number two. I have it at number two, and it's actually number one for friend of the show, Mia Vicino of Letterboxd. Hi, I'm Mia Vicino, West Coast editor of Letterboxd and the co-host of their podcast Weekend Watchlist, as well as their upcoming awards season podcast called Best in Show. My favorite film of this year was one I saw last February at Virtual Sundance, After Yang. It is the only five star I gave out on first watch this year because, I mean, you put Colin Farrell in a Koganata movie and throw in an original Mitski song and I am toast. But on top of all of these elements that seemed designed in a lab for me, Koganata has crafted this gorgeous lo-fi sci-fi about identity and grief and love and technology and memory and tea and so much more. And it all intertwines to conjure and examine a portrait of the new nuclear family of the future one that looks both familiar and unfamiliar. Plus, it's streaming on Showtime. What a gift. Happy Colin Days film spotting. Happy Colin Days, indeed. Thank you, Mia. I love that she called out the T as well, a scene of the year candidate for me, that conversation uh, between Colin Farrell and uh, Justin H. Min. So yeah, After Yang, my number two, without naming my number one yet, I'll just say that After Yang was in constant competition for that slot up until the last minute. Ask me tomorrow, maybe tomorrow After Yang is the best movie of 2022 <laughs> for me. Whatever the case, it's always good to see a golden brick winner like Koganada deliver on a follow-up film. And it's what he's done with this, this warm, wise, just incredible movie. I think it's fitting then for this film spotting affiliated director to also be honored by the film spotting advisory board. These are the most hands-on involved members of the film spotting family. So here's the advisory board member Edwin Arnauden with his thoughts on After Yang. Hey, film spotting crew. Edwin, prevention expert Arnauden here from Asheville Movies, and I'm honored to represent the film spotting advisory board on this year's top 10 show. My favorite film of 2022 is After Yang, which is probably the longest movie has stayed at number one for me over the course of a year since Zodiac way back in 2007. Our man Koganada set a high bar five years ago with Columbus, but somehow cleared it with this soulful sci-fi drama. It's a bit ironic that a film about an android wound up being the year's most humane feature, but here we are, complete with sweet dance moves and Mitski's lovely cover of Glide. Adam, Josh, Sam, Betty, Veronica, and Golden Joe, Thanks for all you do, enriching our lives week after week. My best to you and your families this holiday season, and Happy New Year. Edwin, one of those listeners, so blessed is to have a Sam Van Halgren patented nickname, something we used to give out on the show many years ago to our donors. He is Edwin, as you heard, prevention expert, Arnaden. I have no idea where Sam came up with those, and that's the genius of those nicknames. Also, Koganata have been referenced a couple times as sort of affiliated with the show. We like to think he is anyway. He's been interviewed twice on the show. He was a prior Golden Brick winner for that 2017 film Columbus. So see, we know what we're doing with these directors that we're anointing as the next <laughs> big things. And this is a great work from Koganata, as Josh and others have said. Mia really expressed it well. The The last line, too, is interesting, right? She says that it's this portrait of the new nuclear family of the future, one that looks both familiar and unfamiliar. 
she could be talking about both in this case, the new nuclear family that looks familiar and unfamiliar and the future that we get here in this film, this vision of it. I just think that's really one of the wonders of this movie. It's such a, a difficult line to walk in terms of production design and costumes where we don't know what year it is. It's sort of just this near future and with a real sense of practicality, but artistry, we get something that does feel right. And, and, and that's not because we have any sense of what it should be, but we're not pulled out of the story either because something doesn't seem to, to connect with what the future might be. The example I gave when we reviewed this movie, Josh, was, you know, it's not Minority Report. There's a lot of scenes in a vehicle, but they're always just confined to the vehicle. It's not like we need to see all the roads <laughs> and the, all the, the buildings and this futuristic landscape, just the reflective glow of the lights on the pod covering, if you will, is enough to suggest everything we need to know about this space. And it just it, it doesn't just ask us, it allows us to use our imagination. That's what Coconata is really so good at. And yes, it, it's about identity and grief and technology and memory and tea, all those things that Mia said. And those topics are all endlessly explorable because they're ever-changing and unknowable. And I, I'm tying this back to my kind of conceit for my list, but Yang is this really beautiful meditative detective story. There's a dead person from the very beginning of the film, and there's someone investigating. It's Colin Farrell's Jake. But, of course, we know and he knows how he died. There, there's no real mystery there. What, what he doesn't know is how he lived. And... Yang's life as a synthetic human, no matter how many clues or insights we might get, that's always going to be unknowable to us as human beings. We can never fully fathom that. It's also going to change always because it's going to change along with Jake's perspective. Jake's perspective on his family, on Yang, on his own life, you get the sense shifts over the course of this movie as he learns more. Imagine how he'll feel about it and Yang 10 years from now, 15, 20, 25 years from now. There are Many movies this year, we may touch on one or two of them that delivered the goods as far as bombast and, and spectacle, but I really appreciate the quietness of this film, the plaintiveness of the plaintive quality of this film. But to go back to Marcel the Shell, it's still such a hopeful film. And as Edwin said, it's a humane film. Yeah, it's hopeful in that the Colin Farrell character, you get a sense, is in a very different place by the end of it, but not dramatically. No. So not, there isn't really like a single epiphany. It's, it goes back to the idea of mystery and the back to the idea of things unfolding at their own pace in some of these movies where we see a dawning occurring for him. And we're having that dawning for us alongside him as we see some of these memories from Yang. And then that final shot in this film which is an interaction between father and daughter we've seen variations of before, previously, I think at least three other occasions. It's recreating that interaction, but there's just slight enough of a change for you to feel incredibly hopeful for him as a father, for her as a daughter, and for them as, a, as an entire family, really. Yeah, and light touch. I mean, I mean, there's so much kind of humanism out there that is, is really – just diagrammed and yellow highlighted and all the rest of it. And this, and this coconut, just works a very, you know, a very different terrain. And I, I also love that the future 
we'll always have a place for Dance Dance Revolution. You know? It's so great. I mean, it's just kind of fantastic. You know? Yeah. It always feels sort of present, you know, in a way that the karaoke doesn't hit me the same way. And what a nice <laughs> counter, too, to the quietness that we're all lauding and praising. I think it's crucial that for that opening credit sequence, we get this blast of energy, color, rhythm, propulsiveness, just to kind of almost let us know how distinct the rest of the movie is going to be. And also to let us have a little bit of just plain old fun, you know, at yeah, the start of it, this otherwise very serious film. It introduces us to actually all of the characters so in the story. Great. It unites all of them. And we understand this collective experience they're having. And you're right. It's it's a joy that that sequence, one of the best music moments of the year. On a completely selfishly personal note, I am grateful that this is a breakout year for Colin Farrell in terms of topping many best acting lists, many best film lists. He's been my favorite actor since I was 14 years old. I saw American Outlaws, a terrible film, but as a 14-year-old, a great film. And I have loved him ever since. He has never missed for me. There's a, maybe two films where I'm like, well, uh, he was good. But in terms of acting, he's never missed for me. And for a brief moment when I was in college, it was kind of embarrassing to be a Colin Farrell fan. It was pre Bruges. Mm -hmm. I'd bring it up. People would be like, mm, you have bad taste. And I'm like, you have bad taste. <laughs> um, and I had one friend who liked Colin Farrell. And this conversation Farrell. is over. <laughs> yeah, I had one friend who liked Colin Farrell. And we would, at every party, spend the first five minutes just talking about whatever new Colin Farrell movie we'd seen or whatever. Just get it out of the system while we had yeah. someone to talk to that wasn't judging us. And then in Bruges happened. And suddenly people started, a lot more people started realizing, wait, actually, he's a good actor. And then he started getting better roles. Like, he had great roles right. mixed in with some of the less good roles that he was good in. Um, but he, even very early on, like, Tigerland, it's great. But it's been great to just see it grow and grow and grow and see him grow and grow and grow as an actor and hitting a place where he can do something in a year where he can do what he did in Batman, which is nuts. What he could do in this, what he did in 13 Lives, and then what he did in Banshees. And they're... It's the same actor, and there's a, there's an undercurrent of the same artist in there, but all four roles are vastly different, vastly different toolbox pieces of his toolbox as an actor, and I just love to see it. Yeah, I love I, to see it. It I, makes me so you. happy. Yeah, I'm Great. with you, and someone I think I was probably guilty of taking for granted a little bit early on in his career. But you mentioned the Banshees of Inna Sharon. I'll first say that after Yang, if you haven't caught up with it yet, streaming on Showtime and available VOD, we are going to continue Mariah's vindication of her love <laughs> for Colin Vindication is what it feels like. <laughs> it, I have it been, should be, especially as we I talk about— I never wavered. As, as you we, can ask everybody. We never talk wavered. about a movie and a performance as good as after Yang, and then we go to this film, Banshees, which you, until very recently— had is your number one film of the year. It is now yeah. your number two. Yeah, and I, you'll, I'll, I'll explain how this got knocked down, and I think people will understand. I don't know if Colin Farrell will understand, but <laughs> <laughs> I've yet to like meet a him. So man. he does seem like a great, lovely, but he's vindictive man. Great person. No. <laughs> um, I just, he's so good, and he's always been good. I've always loved sort of that Irish charm, for lack of a better phrase, that he has in all of his movies and you see in a lot of Irish actors there's just a little something a little magic I don't know it's part of the culture and my favorite of his films almost always are the ones where that really gets to come through um, where he gets to be Irish and he gets to bring that 
part of his personality into it. And with Banshees, what's interesting is you have that, but you also have him playing just the dimmest character he's probably ever played. (laughs) Uh, I'm trying to think of like a dimmer character. I don't think so. In Bruges, he was a little dim. This is like Mm. dim, but so kind. And, And when you listen to him talk in interviews, he is the kindest person. He's always thinking about others. He's, he talks so beautifully about his children, about his brother, about the things that matter to him. And I think you see that reflected in this performance, which makes the film and its sort of key emotional explosion. I think I used emotional explosion earlier, but it made me laugh. It made me cry. It touched me on that personal level as someone who's had some friends just leave my life and with no explanation, at least... Patrick got some explanation from his friend eventually. It's a really painful hurt because you you we take for granted that friendships will last forever, and I they don't often do. Uh, and sometimes you drift apart unintentionally, but sometimes someone literally just doesn't want to be your friend anymore. And that's of all the like breakups I've had, the ones where it's just a friend disappearing. I'm like, what did I do? <laughs> now I'm sitting here next to you, and if you're going back inside, I'm following you inside, and if you're going home, I'm following you there too. Now. If I've done something to you, just tell me what I've done to you. And if I've said something to you, maybe I said something when I was drunk and I've forgotten it, but I don't think I said something when I was drunk and I've forgotten it. But if I did, then tell me what it was. And I'll say sorry for that too, Colin. With all my heart, I'll say sorry. Just stop running away from me like some fool of a moody schoolchild. But you didn't say anything to me. And you didn't do anything to me. Well, that's what I was thinking, like. I just don't like you no more. Before we get any more comments on this film, The Banshees of Inisherin, let's hear from another one of our guest critics who does feel this is the number one film of the year. Hey, this is Jen Johans. I'm a film writer at filmintuition.com and also a host of Watch With Jen podcast. I want to thank Film Spotting for inviting me to do this. Favorite film of the year so far is The Banshees of Inisherin from writer-director Martin McDonough. It's tender, heartbreaking, beautifully acted. Colin Farrell standing up for the right to be nice in particular hit me very hard. And I think it's so affecting. I love Brendan Gleeson and his dynamic with Farrell, the way they kind of are oil and water in this movie. And also appreciated the sudden jolts of violence and the backdrop of the Irish Civil War in this tale of friendship that may have run its course. And I thought it was also a very mature way to look at the need to sometimes end friendships or reevaluate where you are in life because we are always changing. So I highly recommend you check out Banshees of Anishrin. Thank you, Jen, for that. Yeah, this is my number four film of the year, a movie that if I'm remembering correctly, I saw sitting between one Josh Larson and Mariah Gates, the only time all three of us were were at a movie this year. It was the Chicago International Film Festival, or at least I should say we were seated next to each other for a movie this year. It is as wistful a movie in some ways as the one we just talked about after Yang. Very different film, obviously. A lot more humor, a lot more cynicism. It's exploring 
these big topics like friendship in only the way Martin McDonough can. Of course, it's about friendship, but also the folly and cost of war. It's about mortality. It's about, with Gleason's character, you said, Mariah, it's about the legacy you're leaving behind. And so it becomes about art and sacrifice as well. But in terms of this this idea of the mystery of it, there's so many of them, as some of the topics I was just touching on suggest, but, and I wish I could do an Irish accent here, this would be so much better, perhaps, but I just don't like you no more. You do like me. I don't. But you liked me yesterday. <laughs> I mean, it's just so brilliant. And maybe I'm as dim as Colin Farrell's character because I can't comprehend it any more than he can. And I would be seeking an answer and an explanation and a justification just as ruggedly as he does. I also just love that we're all sitting here together at the holidays and a Martin McDonough movie has brought us all yeah. together. <laughs> We've come a long way, Adam. In harmony. <laughs> all right, so let me add some praise to this. And it, it's a question, really. I enjoyed this movie so much. The two of you can attest the laughing we did in that row. But also, I think why it's lasted for me is it's reckoning with true despondency as well mm. that this movie does. And it, this connects to what we're saying about Patrick, which is the dimness, absolutely. But I wonder if there's a level of self-delusion going on there that this rift forces him to confront. Because I wonder if he would, and maybe it would have been better for him to have stayed friends with Colm, gone to the pub the saint for the rest of his life, and never had to ask himself some of the questions that their rift forces his, him to ask himself. Because I think it reveals some levels of depression, quite frankly, that, you know, we're troubling him, but he didn't have to face mm -hmm. until this. And I just think this is one of the intricacies of the film that give it that added layer of depth and gives it more of a lasting power than a very amusing story of two friends who get in a fight and they have, you know, adorable accents. It yeah. has all that. I had a, I had a slightly, I don't yeah. know, I'm a bit of a spoiler on this one. I mean, I liked it very much, and it, but but I but for me, the the effectiveness was more temporary than lasting. I saw it a second time and it kind of like shrunk a little for me. Partly, I think it's because I saw too many, almost all of McDonough's plays in my other life before I came back to film. And so that when you see titles like A Behanding in Spokane. Love that you know, title. Uh, you know, you're, if, you, if you've seen a few of these and you just sort of are essentially waiting subconsciously for the, for the dismemberment to begin, you know, which, which, you know, which is kind of my experience with, with Banshees as well. It's like, okay, well, if at some point, you know, it'll be. There comic, will be blood. There will be blood. It'll be, it'll be sort of like grotesque black humor violence in a way. Um, I have a slight reservation or question, I guess, about whether or not McDonough like I often feel about the Coen brothers, just simply reflexively have a kind of a adolescent boy's uh, love of uh, goosing the audience with a kind of a jolt of like comic sadism. And and I think luckily Banshees has enough texture and, you know, enough real craft going with how we're going to visually create this fantasy bit of Ireland, which is cobbled together from like three different locations. And, all. you know, it's no more realistic than uh, Ebbing, Missouri looked like in three billboards, uh, which was just sort of like a foreigner's idea of what, what some part of the American South might be like. Or, um, but I, but it's, it's entrancing in a way just because he's a very witty writer. And that's what I really appreciate. Uh, I think and that's why I, that's why I like it. And anything that can give those two actors in particular. Yes. 
the, that that amount of room, which is why I liked in Bruges, you know. And I interview, I did get to interview Farrell uh, at uh, around in Bruges time at Sundance, and that guy's that guy's brain is unbelievably quicksilver. He is so sharp witted. In an, I mean, he is just he is just staggeringly bright as an actor, and you can tell he has no ego at all, at all. He's just all he wants to be is the best actor he can be, and and this is his great year. One of the like aspects of growth I think you see in in this film for him as a writer though and a and a filmmaker is that it's not just that shock of violence, but he he explores the aftermath of that violence mm-hmm. because I don't want to spoil it if you haven't seen it, but the character that does the violence. I think he did it without really thinking. He knew what it was going to do to him, and he knew what it was going to do to the immediately immediate person he was intending it to hurt. But much like war, it had much deeper consequences than the immediate action mm-hmm, had. Mm-hmm. And I, it might be him as a filmmaker and him as a writer thinking deeper than just, I'm going to shock the audience for once. Maybe so. Maybe not. Maybe so. I, I watched—I'm going to recommend it. It's 35 minutes. Martin McDonough talking to Taylor Swift— why Taylor Swift is on there. She's technically a director. I don't know. It was actually a very interesting conversation between two artists. Whether you agree that she should be on a Directors on Directors is a different point altogether. But she asked him specifically about that violence and his answer about where it came from. Fascinating. Hmm. I think I don't I think it was fascinating. All right, I'll check it out. Yeah, um, I think I think the violence here is not just for shock, as I've found it to be in some of his other films. I think there's a thoughtfulness to it. But mm-hmm. for me, it does come back to the acting and the performances. Why I did too find Michael, some of that, some of the machinations going on in the final moments to up the tragic ante more than I felt the movie probably needed. And maybe that's why it didn't make my top 10. It was, it was close. So you're kind of at this point, you're wondering like, what are the movies I had quibbles with, you know, just yeah, yeah, to like cut the yeah. list off. And it might've been because I felt that just kind of like the script doing a lot of work. But you come back to the performances, and Farrell in particular pulls that off, puts us, brings us past those questions we might have in the back of our mind, like, well, does it have to? Would it go this far? You know, would it really go this far? Or am I now? Is this where I feel like a Martin McDonough movie feels like it has to go? Yeah. But it, it didn't matter all that much to me, or it bothered me less because you had such a deeply felt, funny, but also deeply distressed human being at the center going through something that so many people could relate to just in a, in a very fanciful context. Yeah. Yet the humanity was there in Farrell's performance. And, and I mean, nobody can write that anecdote. Again, I won't spoil it. That ends with a punchline involving a, a, a bakery truck uh, is it got the biggest laugh I can remember hearing in a theater, certainly since COVID started. <laughs> and it's just, it's, I mean, and it's just, it's just brilliant comic writing, and uh, so I'm not I'm not dismissing McDonough's talent. I'm just sort of questioning some of the old reflexes. But you know, that's I, I will I will seek out that interview. It's an interesting interview. Um, another aspect of Patrick's character, in particular, that I related to, is I grew up in a very insular, isolated rural community, and I lived on the edge of town. I didn't. I was a strange child. I did not have a lot of friends. Most of my friends growing up were my neighbor's pigs and my cats. And uh, the way that Patrick is with his animals and the way that they're his friends. And he's sad he wants to be with his horse. When I was nine, eight or nine, when I had a bad time at school, I would go home and I would talk to my neighbor's pigs. Hmm. Pigs are very smart animals and they're very empathetic. And they talk to you. But the thing that you know about 
growing up in a rural community when you get you live around animals that aren't just cats and dogs that came to me in a very hard way because my parents are from Los Angeles and they did not prepare me for this is those animals are raised to be eaten mm-hmm. and one day I came home and the pigs were gone Charlotte's web you yeah. lived it yeah the pigs were gone cuz it was slaughtering time and I got to say, that really hurt. No, that's good. They were like my best friends and the best listeners I think I've ever known in terms of friends. And seeing him hurt so badly just with the friendship and wanting to be with the animals, but then other hurts that happen later in the film, I was like, I feel this. I'm feeling like deep emotions that I had buried from my childhood. Mm. Um, And I always love when a film really captures what an insular role community is like well because a lot of times they are played for comic laughter in a laughing down kind of way and i don't think this film is ever laughing down on the characters here it is it there's humor in it but it it he understands what that kind of community is like mm. in a way that i i don't often see depicted so whenever i see a rural community pre- depicted well i even if the movie's trash, if it's a rural community depicted well, I'm like, that's an extra point. Yeah, <laughs> yeah for, sure. for sure. He for minds sure. the absurdity of it, but he, he isn't But he respects it. Yeah. 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 The Banshees of Inisherin is currently streaming on HBO Max and VOD. If you are keeping score at home, we've made it through eight of our ten consensus picks with those two bonus films off the top. Nope and everything everywhere all at once. That means we do have two more to go. And first up is a film that... I was worried that somehow I was going to be the only one to have it in my top 10. Now, I became vividly aware that Mariah was not going to have it on her list because I saw where she (laughs) ranked it in that letterbox list of 350 movies. I had to assume based on our glowing review that it just missed the cut for you, Josh, or was pretty close. We are talking here about Todd Field's Tar and Michael, fortunately, you're here to have my back. I don't know how high it is, no, but I've it made, it's out now. <laughs> He's putting Marcel on twice. So, but but you liked me yesterday. <laughs> I don't I don't know where we where we went wrong. So I can't wait to hear some of your thoughts on the latest film, the first one in 16 years from writer director Todd Field. You heard Ryan McQuaid at the beginning of this segment really articulate why it's so high for me or why it fits nicely into the scheme of my list, a movie that questions everything, answers little, and leaves us wanting and wondering. I really like the phrasing of that, wanting and wondering more than any other film this year, and I think that that's accurate. We're going to hear from another guest in a moment who talks about how immersive this film is, and I do think you could even say it's a little bit oppressive in terms of its visual and oral design, which I think is befitting the Lydia Tarr character that Kate Blanchett plays in her behemoth stature. And it is a film that is like a jigsaw puzzle, so much so that recently, I don't know if you guys saw the piece or read it that Dan Coyce wrote over for Slate, suggesting that people, or in this case, really critics, are taking at face value a movie that shouldn't be. He's suggesting that perhaps a good portion of the film might not be quote unquote real. It might all actually be playing out in Lydia's head or have it's part of some kind of vision or dream or nightmare. And I'll say I I appreciate the essay. There's there's some good close reading of the film in it. 
it also, though, tries to explain something that I don't think requires any kind of explanation. I don't think it adds anything to the film or my understanding of it either. But when I say it doesn't require an explanation, that's insofar as the entire film unfolds like a kind of vision or dream. The the sounds that she hears at night, those mysterious sounds, the figure that's following her, the the filming of her that's happening, her her entire personality and sense of identity seem from pretty early on so haunted and, and fractured that the only thing I really took at face value is that I can't take any of it at, at face value, any of it being sort of real or actually occurring. Uh, that That isn't as interesting as what this character perceives to be occurring and how it's affecting her. Well, I, I'd love to hear from Mariah, you know, what, why, why, oh, is, why is it uh, nothing to you? Or, you well, know, it's just part frustrating. Of it, and not... part, part of it was I, um, as much as I like Kate Blanchett, I don't think, I know he wrote it for her, but I don't think she'd made any choices in there that I didn't expect Kate Blanchett to make. Hmm. And I, so uh, it's a good performance, but it's, I think she can do better. I've seen her do more. And I thought her vocal choices playing Spazitura the monkey was more interesting, frankly, because she did things that were unexpected for, and I, I would have liked to have seen this kind of character with an actress like maybe Tilda Swinton who would have gone places that Todd didn't even plan. Possibly. I think the the Hmm. counter for me would be that what surprised me, and maybe there are examples of this from Blanchett's work that I'm overlooking at the moment, Mm -hmm. but it's such a physical performance. It's not it's not just in in sort of the delivery of any any lines or the way she gets at the psychology of this character. It's something during the review I mentioned, like what she had to do from a research standpoint is important just in terms of I have to believe when she stands up in front of that orchestra that 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 is something that's real, that that she has this prodigious talent, that she understands the music the way she does. If any of that breaks down at all, the entire sort of the reality in in so far as there is reality of this movie is shattered and I think about those thunderous kind of throws of the baton and the way she she physically melds with the music is something I'm not surprised to see Blanchett do I, it. I, I but think I love you need it. to rewatch Bandits. A film I've never seen. There you so, go. But again, I'm not saying this. I'm kidding, this out. but actually she has a, a really great I'm sure. I'm sure I think she's capable of anything physical. on on stage or screen. And I'm I'm not singling this out as as necessarily her best performance, though it, it, it could be up there. But I think you know, that idea of it being hard to fake Lydia Tarr is precisely because Lydia Tarr herself is such a fake. And I think that mm-hmm. both Blanchett and Field actually turn you on to that pretty early in, in terms of how carefully orchestrated every aspect of her life is, how carefully scripted literally her intro is, which is also the intro to the film, that, that backstage demeanor. And then the moment she's on stage, how everything clicks into place and the performance in this in this case, See, she's, she's I, just talking. I agree with that. Yeah. I agree with that. But I don't the voice. Too. I don't yeah. think that he goes far enough in critiquing. Like, I don't find anything interesting about uh, someone of her stature in the art world being fake. That aside, I, I just felt like everything he was saying, I was like, I, I already know all of this. I already know that this is a fake world. I already know that there's all these predators. Maybe it's because I worked in Hollywood for too long and I saw too much. I don't know. But I didn't find any of it revealing. I didn't find any of it um, shocking. I didn't find anything she chose to do shocking. 
I don't know. That's I, I was like, this was a lot, and I'm glad that you thought it all out and plotted it all out. But there was not a single reveal of her character that I didn't see where he planted the seeds. I'll just I, say I, quickly I thought, before we get to you, Michael, because it's actually on your list. <laughs> I did find interesting – I know what you're saying, Mariah, but what I found interesting is the way this movie – forced her to recognize that about herself and then deal with it. That yeah. was kind of the interesting journey. Well, she had to Until she was kind it. of forced to. But, yeah, I mean, but to watch someone go through that was interesting. So, yeah. But yeah, mm. go ahead, Michael. Why is yeah. it on your list? Well, it, it's, it's, I really like, I really loved it. I, I think for, um, with a couple of big asterisks and I, and I have, I have to sort through those. I, I actually think it's Blanchett's subtlest performance. I've okay. actually had, the too much reaction on everything from Carol, mm. Todd Haynes film, a film I like a lot, but but there's there's a there's a very heightened theatrical Mankay quality to that performance where you just mm. think, well, that's not quite human behavior, and I didn't actually feel that way about Lydia Tarr. I felt like I, I actually buy, you know, her version of all of it. I, I just think I think what happened for me, what happened with her in this performance is what happened with Philip Seymour Hoffman in Capote. And, and I talked to him about this mm. at that time where there was so much technical preoccupation with the work they had to put into the, like getting, getting the baton, the stick work, right. Getting the, you know, everything that she had to do, you know, she learned a little bit. She really toned up on her piano a little bit, just enough to get by. Philip Seymour Hoffman was like obsessed with like, well, how, how, you know, I, I'm a total, this is going to suck. You know, I'm, I'm not, I don't look anything like Truman Capote. I got to get the voice right. I got to get, I don't want to be too much or too little. All that, all that technical work in, in the research and the rehearsal and then the filming uh, somehow managed to get subtler work out of them. And mm-hmm. I, it's a weird paradox. And that's, that was my experience with her in this film. The, I, I, you could argue that the field is a clinical Excellent filmmaker and writer. It's a little clinical, and it's it's diagrammed. Yeah, you know, just in, I you were very early on, Adam, one of the ones who noted the um, anagram. Um, yeah, Lydia uh, also is daily, and Tar yeah, is rat, rat. As the movie and, tells and, us, and, yeah. and you know, there's, and she is every there, day. And I, I've I've responded very strongly to. Um, I think everything Fields done, but it's not it's not um, the kind of creative. Heights that you you get with messier writer directors like Paul Thomas Anderson or or any number of any number of other folks, not yet anyway. The other the only other thing I'd say about it right now, actually, Josh, is that uh, that piece that uh, Adam mentioned, the Dan Coyce piece in uh, Slate, which opens up a whole different you know, intriguing line of like, okay, in one he because he's saying things like in this one scene you see a glimpse of the ghost of a certain character that's referred to, that's kind of a key part of the story, but not seen on, you know, on screen early on. And and I really feel like I saw that damn thing twice <laughs> and I did not catch that particular instance of, of the otherworldly or the, mm-hmm. is it all in her mind sort of, uh, you know, line of interpretation. So, I mean, I guess that's, that's one of the reasons I do think it's kind of a fruitful riddle you yes. know, of a movie. Um, but, I can see why I can see why Mariah why why it it feels that way it, it it's it's a little bit of a and it's also kind of a, it's a it's movie making as a punitive act mm. a little bit because it's like it sets her up and it knocks her down and then what I do like about the last the that sort of perplexing last thirty minutes is that it just sort of shows us all that well life goes on even for uh, charismatic predators you know yeah <laughs> you know I wouldn't I'm not saying I agree you know I. Uh, it's it, but it's it's almost a break from the previous 
a couple hours of more expressly punitive sort of narrative rise and fall. I also felt the sequence that they, the place that they put her in that's supposed to be the lowest point is punching down on a certain kind of music in a way that I didn't. Right. But see, then there's so many interpretations up for grabs with the ending as well. I just think it is for me a confounding enough character Mm -hmm. and movie and it's, it's messy in all all the right ways for it to be one of my films of the year. And we're going to go ahead and give the last word to one of our guests. Hello, this is Murtada El Fadl, culture writer and critic at the AV Club, Backstage Magazine, and other places. And I'm here to tell you that my favorite film of 2022 is Todd Field's Tar. It's not just another movie. It's an immersive visual and oral experience. Star is a film about the artistic process and the hierarchy of prestigious cultural institutions examining how and why power corrupts. Kate Blanchett plays Lydia Tarr, a conductor of the Berlin Philharmonic. And although she's indisputably a genius, she's also a narcissist, either dismissing those who disagree with her or rebuking them in a withering display of intellect. You want to dance the mask? You must service the composer. You've got to supplement yourself, your ego, and yes, your identity. In fact, stand in front of the public and God and obliterate yourself. She's a dictator, but one whose expertise and intellect is so seductive that she's able to cajole those around her to do her bidding. Blanchett has as much control of her instrument as the virtuosos performing in the orchestra in this film. She has an immediacy and rhythmic flow to her performance that manifests both physically and emotionally. And Todd Field utilizes long takes to highlight her absolute and yet seemingly fully intuitive control in the role. Lydia might be a cruel narcissist, but Blanchett is utterly bewitching. We understand her appeal and are drawn to her despite all that's transpiring. The script that Field wrote doesn't offer any easy answers or further push the audience away or towards Lydia. It is dense and full of mysterious clues. It's like a jigsaw puzzle for the audience to solve as they are watching. For all these reasons and many more, Tar is my favorite film of the year. If you'd like to listen to more of me about Tar, listen to my podcast about the films of Kate Blanchett. It's called Sundays with Kate, and you can listen to it at sundayswithkate.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. It's available on all podcast applications. And you can follow me on Twitter at me underscore says or follow me also me underscore says on Letterboxd. Thank you so much. Our thanks to Murtada for that contribution. I love that line about Blanchett having as much control over instrument as the virtuosos performing in the orchestra. Tar is currently available VOD. That brings us to, finally, the last of our consensus picks, and then we will go through our outliers, the movies that didn't make at least two lists. Josh, we have shared a number one film of the year at least once before. I think it was just two years ago. Here, me, you, and Michael all had Steve McQueen's Lover's Rock at number one. And if I want to go way back, there was a time when The Tree of Life Mm. was deemed by us the film of the year. I was not officially part of the show yet, but I was guesting on this roundtable and did have Tree of Life at number one. And then we went through many years, Adam, a decade almost apart, where we just did not see eye to eye. It's a reunion. It it took Lover's Rock. (laughs) 
And now we do have a shared number one that I think we could also call the front runner probably for the Golden Brick as well. Would have to now. Yeah, Golden Brick finalists, you know, often show up on our top 10 lists each year, but not often in the number one slot, which is where we do both have Charlotte Wells after Sun. I don't know what else someone could want from a film than what Wells does give us here, Adam. Let's hear from someone who's been brought up a couple of times on the show already, Chicago critic Robert Daniels, who also fell hard for this one. Hello, my name is Robert Daniels. I'm a Chicago-based film critic and a contributor to RogerEbert.com, The Playlist, The New York Times, and The LA Times. Um, my favorite film of 2022 is Charlotte Wells' affecting directorial feature debut after sun starring paul mescal and frankie corio as father and daughter who are on holiday during the 1990s what makes this film so interesting is that we are seeing this story from the grown-up daughter's perspective she's looking back on these memories of her and her father and trying to empathize with the travails her father is experiencing travails that she can now think about but could not scarcely imagine when she was younger um, it has one of the best uses of Queens under pressure to Trophine. It is uh, wonderfully rendered. It is acutely choreographed, and it is precise in its emotional intention. It was a film that crushed me when I first saw it in Carlo Viveri, and it is a film that crushes me still. Full disclosure, Adam, I'm not someone who gets crushed, to use Robert's words, by a movie very often. I don't know, blame it on my Dutch-Norwegian roots, uh, Feelings freeze up there by the Arctic Circle, I think. But for whatever reason, I don't know. Uh, and to be clear, making someone cry should not be the measure of a film's greatness. You know, I, I don't think that's fair. Tears are not a test I put towards movies that if that happens for me, then it must be doing something really great. We all know we can be manipulated. I don't think that should be the case for people who cry at movies easily either, that that should be their litmus test. But in this case, I do have to say, and both times, actually, when I watched it the first time, a mostly empty theater, and then again watching it recently with family at home, the slow, gradual, cumulative epiphany, if that's a thing, mm. I don't know if it is, but this movie maybe manages it, of this unassuming film. It just peels away at whatever defenses that I might instinctively try to put up. The movies that do make me cry, they're the ones that sneak up on me. I think I've talked about this in connection with uh, Wes Anderson's films, actually. You don't see it coming. After Sun was something different, though. I had a sense, some sense of what was coming, what this movie was getting at, or itself trying to understand the same time that I was trying to do it. And I'm bolstering myself for it. But still, when it comes, it arrives with such honesty and just filmmaking perfection that it breaks you down. There's not a manipulative moment in this thing. It's 125% honesty and authenticity. So... For that, also for the incisive editing, for the raw performances, all those other things Robert mentioned, it is my number one movie of the year. Was it an easy choice for you as well, Adam? Or? Yeah, it really was. Yeah. From the moment I saw it, which was fairly late in the year, it jumped into my number one spot and it didn't budge despite all my end of year viewing. And there were no tears for me that I that I can recall, actual tears, not that there's a problem with that. Some moments in movies from the year did make me cry. But to your point, the cumulative effect, I just felt I felt 
overwhelmed mm-hmm. at the end yeah. of the movie, just emotionally, intellectually. And it's the combination of the two. Some movies that are more manipulative and they get those tears, they elicit those from you. Sometimes you're, you're falling for it because you're human, but it's the combination of those two elements. Robert didn't spoil anything there when he talked about kind of the point of view of the film. We touched on this during our review as well. The perspective is blatant in the plot summary, this idea that a character is looking back on her life. But I did just appreciate so much watching this film without knowing any of that and having that be built into the experience, the mystery here again of piecing together. Who is that I'm I'm seeing in these reflections in the TV who who is watching this footage that, that you don't know is necessarily footage at first, but then you, you realize that that it is digital. And I'll I'll tie it back to my central idea and to a movie like After Yang specifically what Paul Meskel's character, the father, says about the carpet in this film. Remember when they go to that very expensive carpet place mm-hmm. and he actually spends the money on that? He says that every every carpet like this has a story. And it reminded me of the tea scene, actually, the same way mm-hmm. every every tea has its own story and, and goes back generations. There's also there's there's an investigator here, right? There's someone who is trying to make sense of an experience and of memories and of images that have been captured by this video camera. But there are no answers that can come here. You can't just turn to somebody to to fill in the blanks. And that ignorance, if you will, is is something that that haunts this character. I do think Wells just so masterfully depicts the elusiveness. You mentioned the editing and the camera work, the elusiveness of memory and experience. Yeah. The sound, the discontinuity editing. When to drift away from when Mescal, to drift. Just to let the camera, like, I was, as we start to perfect. forget him, right? Well, it, it's the, the way the camera drifts, it's almost like through some of these shot choices, it's not just about a director trying to render a moment the right way or to capture the moment unfolding the right way. It actually suggests almost that someone else is watching. Yeah. Right. It's someone else's eyes viewing this. And I just think that's I I think it's a little bit of a miracle. I really do. I really that's how strongly I feel about this film. I watched it with Robert at Cologne Reberry and I saw him. He said it. it, What did he say? It crushed um, him. Is that what he said? Like I saw the visceral reaction. I think Robert's someone who I don't think he'll mind if I say this. He lost his father in his 20s and it's something he still grapples with. The, The things that they didn't hash out, the things that. They did hash out the the way that the 10 years on, and I don't think it's said 10 years yet, but years on, you you start to lose things. And I think this is a film that really hits harder. Not that it doesn't it didn't hit me hard, but it hits harder if you have experienced that. And I literally saw him just like turn into a puddle when it was over. And I thought it was great, but whatever he experienced was some higher level of of just being seen by a film. And I was like, I, he, I'm going to let him go sit over there. And then he wrote about it like immediately. He's like, I got to write about this like while the feeling is still there. And I'm like, I'm going to go eat some, you know, Czech food right now. And he's written about it a few times. He wrote a beautiful piece for Roger Ebert about it um, for the top 10, I think. He wouldn't show it to me when he wrote it. He just, he's like, I just emailed it straight. And I'm like, oh, wow. and then I read it and I was like, mm. oh no, no it is the top 10. So if you read the piece, I think you'll really understand the personal connection he had to this film. But I love a film that can hit someone like that. And I, I love being able, as someone who mostly watch, went to movies by myself, it's been wonderful in the last year to actually see a lot of movies with Robert and see 
his reactions because sometimes he'll ver- viscerally hate a movie he did not like. Nope, by the way. Um, and to to see that, uh, see a movie really hit somebody and actually get to see it happening is a wonderful experience. And I'm glad to have that again. Well, you said, Adam, about sort of how do you depict in film terms the act of remembering, looking back. And it, it, this is a film that I think is equally shrewd about how to do it uh, just in terms of how you're going to write, okay, we script it this way, and this, but how you how do you actually visually depict it, and then how do you edit it properly so that, in in Wells's case, you're going for a sense of not quite being able to keep track of when these memories probably and these thoughts come back to to haunt you a little bit right. in your present state, and that's that's what the film I think is is really great about it. It, it doesn't it doesn't mind losing some people along the way, <laughs> and I I like that. I really like, yeah. I think like like Mariah. I didn't I didn't have an easy maybe I didn't have a simple uh, emotional response to it at any one point. The way I did say like when you're in the where where you're in the grip of a movie like I don't know. Like for me, like Pixar's up the minute that montage with the marriage thing or even the happy ending thing at the end. I usually never cry when things are going wrong for somebody. I just cry when things go right um, or if something falls on me, I cry. <laughs> but uh, but but this was a much – I mean this is a much higher grade of tear, you know, I think it's because it's dealing with, you know, the biggest stuff there is, which is just trying to figure out uh, who the hell your parents are or were. Yeah, and um, yeah. the parent here, Paul Meskel, familiar to some coming into this, but certainly a breakout performance. One, I know, Josh, we both had high on our Chicago mm-hmm. Film Critics ballot. In fact, I had him only second to Colin Farrell from The Banshees of Inna Sharon, and I would put it right up there with that performance, obviously, despite the fact that I think Farrell deserves it. I also want him to win. I'm, I'm all on board with the narrative that this is Colin Farrell's year, and he got my number one slot. But Paul Meskel, I teased this during our discussion of the film. I said there was a moment that I thought would maybe come up, just a, a perfect acting moment, I felt, that maybe would come up when we were doing our performances of the year talk, and it didn't, so I'm going to share it here. There's a scene later in the film where he has just really disappointed his daughter and said something kind of mean to her and she says something really mean back to him which is something along the lines of she suggests that he's just offering to pay for something when he doesn't even have the money to Mm -hmm. do it and it's just this biting just this cutting insult to him who is trying to have this great vacation and trying to provide a, a great memory for her and everything's supposed to be special and perfect and The way Meskel turns to her and laughs for a second, it's the laugh when someone says something that you didn't expect was coming. You actually, you you can't believe sort of how mean it is. So you actually laugh for a second like they're joking, except he turns and realizes that she's not joking. But Meskel infuses the moment with a knowledge he knows she's not joking before he even turns his head. And, and yet he still, he still reacts to it. I, I just think if you saw this moment or if you rewatch this moment, you could give 100 actors 100 tries with a nonverbal response to her line, and they wouldn't deliver something as naturally tender and sad as he does. And he's also incorporating a little bit of surprise or realization, maybe admitting that, oh, this little kid knows me better than I thought. 
she knew me. Right. And that in, in a cutting way. Mm-hmm. And that's all layered in just a gesture, really. Okay. We're going to get to our outlier picks, finally round out our lists here in a moment. But we have to give the floor to you, Mariah. Because we said the Banshees of Inisherin was your number one and a pretty solid number one until you had a certain viewing experience. Yeah. And why don't you go ahead and do the honors? Because this this really has been a film that you, I have seen on Twitter, have been <laughs> talking a lot about and championing. And you also, I read your great conversation with this director yeah. and gleaned a lot of insights from him. I'm going to go so far as to say... He didn't have, and I do mean this in the most complimentary way possible, he did not have a conversation with anyone else about this film like the one he had with you. <laughs> so do do the honors. Who's the director uh, and what's the film? This is Damien Chazelle's Babylon. And I will be the first to admit that when that trailer dropped at TIFF, I was in between screenings and I dragged that trailer through the mud because it it was a bad trailer. It made the movie look terrible as someone who loves the silent era. I love Melies. I love the weird, strange way that the cinema was growing in the in the two th- in the nine, 1900s. I love how it hit in the 1910s. I love the 1920s. I've gone to Italy four times to go to the Pordenone Silent Film Festival where all they do is show the most obscure things you've ever heard of, mostly you've never heard of. Um, and I've had the best movie-going experiences of my life there. And so I saw that trailer and I was like, this is garbage. Then I saw the movie. <laughs> And the first time, I've seen it in theaters twice now at screenings, plus a few scenes that I watched at home when I was working on some pieces. And the first time I watched it, I was a little hesitant. I I, I love I liked it, but there was aspects of it that I wasn't sure what he was doing because he's playing with history and mythology. And I didn't know, how, like I knew what he was doing, but I didn't know how he was doing it, if that makes sense, or even why um, for some of it. But I knew I knew as I was watching it, because I have one of those minds that keeps images. Like, I'm a very image-heavy person. I can tell you exactly a scene and describe it to you at a movie I've seen 20 years ago. There's so many moments that he's pulling from, from so many films that are obscure, that I'm like, I'm the only one that's seen this movie. There's a, there's a shot from a film from 1920 that's directed by a woman that I'm like, how did he create that scene? So I was really impressed with what I could tell was all the research, but I wasn't sure how we, what he was doing why he was doing what he was doing. And obviously the title is is from Kenneth Anger's, you know, Love It or Hate It, Hollywood Babylon, which perpetuated a lot of myths, right? But what I could tell also was that, or at least I thought, that there was an equal amount of Kevin Brownlow's The Parade's Gone By, which is one of the great oral histories of all time. And so when I interviewed him, I, as soon as I got out, I was like on the train and I was like, I, I need to interview him. I need to ask him. I have so many questions. And he answered my questions, as you said, you read it, about the history and the mythology of it. And I I recommend you read the way he said it because I'm not going to say it as well as him. But it was an interesting way of not just looking at history but looking at history as mythology because the myths are there. But the histories are also kind of myths. Anyone who's studied history, who's done research knows you get to an an accepted history, right? Um, That's the whole point of Rashomon. There's three different versions, three different people. Who's to say who's right? It's you got to find something somewhere balanced in the middle. And I think that's what he's trying to do with this film and with this history. And I found that fascinating because it's an era that's been done a lot and an era that's not well known. Even classic film people, you know, their their silent film knowledge is like Metropolis. 
and they're kind of out. Maybe they've seen mm-hmm. Dr. Caligari. Maybe they've seen Wings. But the amount of people who've seen thousands are like academics and the nerds that go to Pordenone every year, right? To see a filmmaker take that passion, take that history, look at the – because it's not just the movies he's re- he's referencing. It's the lives. There's so many lives in here of, of people you might know, like Clara Bow, people who have been misremembered, like John Gilbert, people you don't even know, like Alma Rubens. It's all in there. Um, he makes you think about Anna Mae Wong differently. He makes you think about Frances Marion differently. He doesn't just have a Dorothy Arzner character. He, he references – minimum six different female directors and filmmakers and producers and editors and writers in a way that I've never seen in a film about the silent era because they were forgotten when they were writing the histories. And then even when they're making these films, they still, uh, when have you ever seen someone playing a fake Dorothy Arzner, let alone a Lois Mm -hmm. Weber, let alone a reference to Alice Guy Like never. He did all of that and then created a hilarious, dark look at what it is to make movies, what it is to love movies, what it is to innovate in movies. And having worked in Hollywood for 10 years, I've seen some of the, like, I think he said they go to, like, the asshole of Hollywood or whatever. I've seen some dark things, both in terms of parties, in terms of things that people who supposedly love movies have said, the people at the, you know, actors, directors, executives. I've seen some stuff. Someday I'll write a memoir. It'll be horrible and someone will have me killed. And I felt like Damien Chazelle has seen that. And he found a way to make it entertaining and found a way to squeeze all of that, the passion, the anger, the hatred, the love, and turn it into this, like, wild ride that at the end is still positive because in the end of the day, the art is is life-changing. If you could go anywhere in the whole world, where would you go? I always wanted to be part of something bigger. Yes. Let's go! Something that lasts, that means something. You know, when I first moved to L.A. I got your face you know what the signs on all the doors read? No actors or dogs allowed. I changed that. Good morning. Good job for you. After seeing this, Adam and I grabbed lunch, and we didn't talk about the movie at length, but I said... There are a couple of critics. I can't wait to hear what they made of this. And you were on that list. And so, so yeah, thank you for filling in that and all those connections, which went There's over my more. head. There's I wrote a piece for IndieWire that became very mammoth. And as far as I know, they're going to let it remain mammoth. That is, a, I would guesstimate, about 10% of the actual, like, influences in this movie. But it was the stuff that I thought was the most pertinent to understand the rise and fall of all these different characters and what he's trying to do with those stories. That should go out at some point. I don't know. It's a bit spoilery, so I have no idea when they're going to publish it. Michael, you were, I think, another one of the names that came to mind because I know you like, you know, classic Hollywood and even previous that cinema, but also a huge fan of Damien Chazelle. Loves so every one of his films yeah, until, how did until this, work this for one. You? Okay. Until this one. But in short, I, I just want to talk briefly, I really think, I think this is one, the first film of his where I felt like he got lost in the writing of it. I, I mm. think I think he I, I and I think he's a good enough director that he there again the typically armchair psychologist here, but you know he, he's a good enough director that he probably uh, didn't question certain things that may or may not be working, and he and he probably kicked that over to the other side of his brain, saying I, I can handle this, I'll I'll make I'll make it work. Hmm. And I don't I I think it's the first film of his. That that made me think he just needed he actually needed something as simple as 
what in the theater world, and you just get a you have a good dramaturg working on your production who's like going to question you on certain things. Like, is it clear? Are these crazy ass tonal switch ups, which are deliberate, you know, all the way, mm -hmm. where you have in the first twelve minutes of this movie, you have everything from a kind of a gushing audience point of view close up of elephant feces, seven eight seconds coming at your face. You know, surrounded by, you know, and then you go to the wild party and then you have, okay, you got to like suddenly, boom, quick cut to a party room where the fatty Arbuckle type is, you know, is getting weed on by a coked up starlet. Okay. So already like everybody going to the movies for Christmas over the holidays, parents are already in the car, uh, which is fine, you know, and it's fine. Chazelle is clearly determined to like, okay, folks, I did La La Land. You're not going to get this this time. Mm -hmm. You're going to get the... You know, the other stuff that may, you know, was part of the mythology and the history of, okay, how how some of this occasionally sublime art got made, right? I don't think he has a grip on uh, maybe some of what you felt like in the first response of like, is it all, is, is he quite sure of the effects, the dramatic effects or the comic dramatic clashes? Uh, is, he, is he sure of the effect of it? I didn't have that problem with any of the other films, but on this one, I just thought, I also thought it's weirdly sexist, which is, you know, uh, why, why you didn't think I that and I did. I don't, I don't know. I don't think it's sexist at all. Okay. I, I think it's honest about the way character, women in particular, were treated. It's I think it's not sexist in that it's honest about the way starlets were treated. Right. Read. But now with the Nelly thing, I think I think Roby's performance and that leading performance, I wouldn't put the charge on. But just to kind of play the, for me... To play the Brad Pitt character's parade of wives as just sort of variations on the theme of kind of shrill, dismissible harridan. Each each of those wives are based on real wives, though. True enough, but but I'm just saying dramatically, it's numbing. That's hmm. my that's my feelings for the moment. I, I'm but I'm really really eager to read uh, go back and now read the Chazelle interview because he's a, a very thoughtful guy, and I, I've really. I'm still, I saw it a second time just to kind of figure out, okay, why? Why am I struggling to engage? You know? I would say, Michael, it wasn't the tonal shifts that I had trouble with. And overall, I liked it, mm -hmm. um, but far less than I would have guessed being also a huge fan of his. It's probably my least favorite of his movies, again, even though I liked it. But it was more, the tone did not seem right for him. This felt like a almost like a Quentin Tarantino-esque, and obviously you, that comes to mind because of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, but even or even a Paul Thomas Anderson, like giant swing to capture debauched humanity mm. in a way that I don't know if Chazelle's other films have shown that is a sensibility that matches with his filmmaking style. I, I never fully believed in the debauchery in the way I probably would have if Paul Thomas Anderson had made this story, for example. And so it just, the swing I admired and the execution in some instances, sequences for sure worked, but as a whole, it felt inauthentic. Obviously not, hmm. I don't have the historical background to bring to it, but just in a sense of what he was trying to say about this place of dreams and nightmares, you know, I, I don't I don't know if this movie really believes in the nightmares and maybe the proof of that for me is the way it ends which honestly I felt was kind of disastrous. I honestly thought the movie ended and somehow a promotional reel from like the see, the, the see, theater chain had started. The, the clips I feel like the montage is misunderstood in the same way because the amount of clips that are in there that are from weird 
random experimental films from the mid-century is wild. I don't it's actually quite an array. Think, it's I don't quite actually an array think of that titles. it's about I've seen a lot of people describe it as as a, a cheesy magic of the movies. Yeah, it's I, about, I disagree with that It's as about well. innovation. Mm. Are you a fan? Well, it's hard with the end of that film because I don't want to spoil this movie yeah. too much for people. In who, general, though, it's where just are you out, But it? in general, I'm way more closer to Mariah's end of things, okay. actually. I, well, cool. I, really, I really went for it. And uh, I'll say from your piece, one of the things that stood out before the movie's even referenced, of course, I think there are certain moments where you're thinking about a movie like Singing in the Rain. Mm -hmm. And I love that he called out that, like, actually, that was kind of the spark for him in a way, was was taking a film like Singing in the Rain, which uses that transitional period for humor, as you would expect. It's a gag in this light, airy movie. You know, the the voice, you know, the actress's voice doesn't work. The where do, where do you put the microphone and those issues? And here, taking that and saying, okay, what if we actually explored it in terms of the absolute tumult mm -hmm. that caused in the industry, not just in, in the great industry, but, but the upheaval it meant to these people, the people actually, not just the studio, but like the people making the doing work, their jobs. doing their jobs. I thought that was really fascinating. And I think tying back to what you said, Mariah, and what you talked about with, with Chazelle, the scene of the movie and perhaps of the year, a sequence I went for hook, line and sinker is that day after the party losing the light, needing to get the big shot moment where you have Manny, the, the Diego Calva character, on his mission and Chazelle's intertwining that with Nelly's story and also with Pitt, Pitt's character as this movie star and what he is going to bring in his, his moment. And there's this propulsive energy to it, obviously in terms of the camera, the editing, the performances to the scale of it. It's impressive and it's entertaining as hell, but it also taps into this idea of the myth-making aspect of it. Like, you're not supposed to believe any part of that. But it's almost as if that's the story everybody involved mm -hmm. someday will tell of that moment. Yeah. And the fact, <laughs> that, he, the shot, the fact yeah. that he captures that, that, and that's how I got my start. You know, the fact that he captures that the way he does is is wonderful. And I think that's a good sequence of showing, you mentioned it, Adam, how it's intertwining between the three ostensibly lead characters in the film, but I think he loses control of that as the movie goes on, and Diego Calva's character does slash fall to the wayside or become more of a servant to the other stories in a way that was frustrating. I agree as with that. As Pitt and Robbie come, yeah. come to the fore, and and I, I was impressed. Like I actually remember writing that down, like he's really pulling this off. These are on three parallel tracks. They're working beautifully, and that's probably the pinnacle, the sequence you called out where he manages that. If that could have been managed through the end of the movie, I might have liked it more. See, I don't agree with that either. The emotional arc that Manny goes through in terms of what achieving what he thinks he's achieving, the things that he gives up, I don't want to spoil it, the things that he gives up to achieve what he thinks is what he wants is devastating. And it leads to the minute he makes that decision to, to change something very – important about him to be who he needs to be to, to work in the place that he thinks he wants to work in. That's when everything goes goes to yeah, hell. It, and it's a film about those compromises. It, yeah, yeah. And I think I think that it's it's a devastating arc for him, but it ends on a place where I think you know, because like you said it maybe doesn't quite fit with what you imagine with Chazelle. I hated La La Land. I absolutely hated it. I thought it was a terrible like tourist version of Los Angeles felt like someone who was completely green 
And I thought it stole a beautiful emotional arc from uh, Umbrellas of Cherbourg that it didn't deserve. I do think that the ending he gives Manny is the last little bit of his naivete that he still had in La La Land. And he's allowing it to live a little bit because even if you've gone through the worst Hollywood has to offer you, at the end of the day, you you still it, – it takes more than all of that to kill the love of movies. You know, like I, I burnt out, truly burnt out. And as you can tell, I still love movies. Mm-hmm. I still love movies more than I ever did because it's less about – the different jobs I've had within it is being able to still work with them and to see how it can change someone's life the way that it, After Sun did for you, right? Hmm. We, Charlotte Wells, like, to get there, she probably had to do some things. Who knows? In, in the end of the day, it's about being able to change people's life through that art. And there's a reticence of movie lovers to understand that there is truly some terrible stuff that has to happen in the history and just today to get that out there, to get that art out there. And I, I think it's a movie where he's trying to, like, shake people to understand that I wish, yeah, and so that's, that you can love it more. That's the movie I wish I'd seen. And, and I'm not I'm not saying, you know, my view is mm-hmm. anything but mine. But, but um, I think the danger right now is that there's such a, such an impulse in the culture um, – and in, in media and journalism and everything, and, and in, in, in colleges, I think, to just really turn your back on a hell of a lot of Hollywood history just because it's a little uncomfortable. Yeah. You're going to have to dance around, you know, the dicey topics uh, of, of no little controversy. Just how are you going to deal with this film, this film, this depiction, that depiction? Mm-hmm. You know, uh, how do you deal with the kind of uh, absolutely uh, uh, multi-pronged uh, reactions to everything we're going to have now, which is like uh, – you know, wonderful things and horrible embar- and humiliating things in the same frame. In the frame, not just the same film, the mm-hmm. same frame. You know, that's going to take some real scholarship, you know. And you don't, have to be, you don't have to have a PhD to do it. You just have to have kind of the patience to go through it. And I'm really concerned that, you know, like your story with the studios where they don't know Bert, where they don't know Bert Lancaster. That but was that, rough. But that kind of general, uh, well, whatever, you know, uh, ignorance, uh, like time, time marches on. It's like, well... Folks, you know, we, we have to we have to pay attention to where we've been, not just where mm-hmm. we are. So anyway. Well, I think what we've learned here is that you should see Babylon. And also we could have devoted an entire episode <laughs> just to Babylon. And we pretty much oh have. Oh, my God, it's midnight already. Yeah, oh, it no. is. <laughs> so we've got Mariah's number one. We heard my number one, Josh's number one. After Sunday Feeling left out, Michael? I'm not going to pick a number one. <laughs> I know. I'm not exactly. going to do it. All I'm going to say is I do. I will give Damon, Damien Chazelle props for including one of my top 10 for sight and sound in that montage, mm. Duck Amuck. He did. I and saw I thought that. Of you. Duck I saw that. Baby. I thought of you. I, I thought I, of you as well. I knew 10. you were legit then, Michael. <laughs> I just then. think what a, way to, what a way to run a railroad. Okay. Know? What about listener picks for the film of the year? We posted this poll in early December. So to make it easier on people, we said... What is, at the moment, the film of the year? We were acknowledging that a lot of us had a month's worth of viewing still to do. Does anybody have any guesses? The movie has been mentioned on this show. What do you think the listeners voted in early December as the film of the year? Mm, Film of the year. It's come up. Are they dumb listeners or smart? No, no, they're actually... Smart listeners. Quite astute. Smart listeners. Yes. Banshees. Okay, well, here's what we're going to do. It's not Banshees. I'll I'll give you the the list of options, and you guys can react to how it came out. In alphabetical order, the choices were After Sun, Banshees of Inisherin, Decision to Leave, 
everything, everywhere, all at once. The Fablemans. Nope. RRR. Top Gun Maverick. There's the other mention of it on this show. And other. You could write in your own choice if those other nine mm. options didn't work for you. Everything, everywhere. Yeah, that was my guess. Okay, Josh, let's see if they're right. I mean, we'll just say they're right. Yeah, they're at right. At the top. 33%. <laughs> yeah. 33% okay, of the poll. I can read through where the other films placed quickly here, though. RRR was in last place with 2%. Decision to Leave, 3%. Nope got 4%. And The Fablemans received 5% of mm. the vote. Then a jump to another tight pack here. After Sun with 8% of the vote. Other. Usually other isn't quite this high, so a lot of films that haven't been named, people voted for, but other received 9% of the vote. Top Gun, 10%. Banshees, 11%. So you weren't too far off there, Michael. Sure. And then Tower received 13% of the vote. But yeah, pretty clear for everything, everywhere, all at once. Jordan Jersick wrote that everything, everywhere was so entertaining while also being outrageously, uniquely silly and also quite moving is a real feat. A recent film spotting newsletter talked about seasonal movie traditions. I'm planning on watching this one again every tax day. <laughs> I think that's a new tradition for all of us. Right? Absolutely. Sounds good to me. In fact, I'm, I'm, in it, yeah, I'm not going to pay my taxes. Next year. I'm just, <laughs> just going to watch the movie. If you Thank you, Jordan, for that. If other... you go to space, I just rewatched Paul 13. If you go to space, you don't have to pay taxes. What? what? That's, how, okay. that's how he gets out of it, uh, Kevin Bacon. Well, so. that's, that's attainable. <laughs> 9% of the vote for other and some of the titles that haven't been brought up on the show yet that made the listener vote, David Cronenberg's Crimes of the Future, oh. the Palm Door winning, but sorry, not very good. Triangle of Sadness. Ty West, Pearl, Robert Eggers, The Northman, the new adaptation of All Quiet on the Western Front, and Sarah Pauly's Women Talking. Let's get, finally, to our outlier choices. This is going to be a very brief segment for you, Josh. The three of us have at least five titles that round out our list that have not come up yet on this show. You, not so much. To get into it, Another guest critic. Hello, my name is Roxana Haddadi. I am a TV critic for Vulture who also writes about film and pop culture. And my favorite film of 2022 was Romain Gavros's Athena, which is streaming on Netflix. I am aware that this film was divisive. There were a lot of people who did not like the ending and thought that it sort of contradicted the earlier story. Uh, but for me, what I really enjoyed about this film was that it took a epic story about three brothers and the different approaches that they took to life, to assimilation, to their family, and mashed that all together and put it up against a very stylized, aestheticized version of an uprising. I can understand if the sort of neon laser lights didn't work for everyone, but I thought it was a really compelling combination of visual and narrative so my favorite film of the year athena yeah athena's one of the more intense movie watches of the year wouldn't you say josh oh yeah and that opening alone though i was you know i thought the opening was going to be the only single take extended sequence nope. no <laughs> the majority of the film is so you don't get much of a chance to catch your breath for sure yeah on netflix definitely recommend athena thank you roxana mariah your films that have not been mentioned yet in terms of our consensus picks. 
Yes. Uh, the first one I want to talk about is Nanny, which was a Sundance-winning folk horror film from writer-director Nikyatu Jusu. It stars Anna Diop as an undocumented Sen- Senegalese immigrant named Aisha, whose life spirals after being hired by careless, privileged white parents played by Michelle Monaghan and Morgan Spector. And it, I love it because it definitely weaves African folklore into uh, a really, truly modern film about the diasporic mi- migration that is happening from multiple regions around the world and the exploitation of workers, which I feel like everyone can sort of uh, relate to. And then another Sundance film that I loved is called Girl Picture. It's from Finland. And for me, it was reminiscent of Fast Times at Ridgemont High, but like even hornier and more respectful of the girls, not the Amy Heckerling disrespected girls, but it's all girls. So that's great. The director is um, Ali Hasbalo, I hope I said that correctly, um, and it follows three girls over three consecutive Fridays searching for love, sexual pleasure, and friendship, and it's shot in a beautiful, tight Academy ratio with this glowing cinematography that brings a coziness to it, and it's just, it's a comfort watch in the making. I also loved Joanna Hogg's The Eternal Daughter, yeah. which can be seen as a coda to her souvenir films, but According to Hogg herself, when I interviewed her, she prefers not to think of it that way. Although Tilda Swinton plays both Julie, a grown-up version of Julie from the Souvenir Films, and her mother Rosalind, who she played in the Souvenir Films, they take a Christmas time trip to an isolated Grand Manor. And in the great tradition of Gothic horrors like The Innocents, lots of strange sounds and happenings happen in a film that's really a tender film about the connections between mothers and daughters and the ghosts of those relationships and also the probably the greatest dog performance of the year. <laughs> Shout out to Louis. A film I saw almost two years ago now, but is technically a 2022 film, uh, Kentucker Oddly and Albert Burney's Strawberry Mansion. It's a low-budge film, but it mixes DIY practical effects, stop motion, and CGI to create one of the most unique visual films I've seen in the last few years, but also one of the most deeply romantic films. You won't see anything like it. There's a wonderful Twitter thread that Albert did of breaking down all, how they achieved all these things on basically no budget. It's crazy. That's a really cool movie. It will yeah. really make you think you can make a movie. you got to be as like imaginative as these two guys, but like they figured it out. They yeah. had no money. It felt like the greatest student movie I've ever seen. There's, and again, I mean that in a it, very yeah, positive there's way. There's no way they should have made a movie that good with that little budget. It's amazing. And I've rewatched it many times and it's top three film going experiences this year was seeing the mouse sailors on the big screen. Um, and yes, I said mouse sailors. You should watch it. And then um, <laughs> mouse, <laughs> mouse sailors. There's yeah. a frog waiter like you're in for a treat. And then one of my other favorite movie-going experiences, I first saw it on my laptop, but then I got to see it on the big screen, is Sarah Dosa's Fire of Love. I mentioned my nerdery of silent film and UFOs, but my third favorite thing in the entire world is lava. Um, I actually grew up near a volcano, and I did not think about how that volcano could have killed me until I watched this movie. And now I'm just grateful of my, for my entire childhood because um, it is an active volcano. But uh, it's about vulcan- volcanologists, Katya and Maurice Kraft, they shot the film footage themselves. Um, it's beautiful, beautiful color photography. And it's mixed together with quirky animation and this wonderful narration from Miranda July talking about their uh, love for each other and their love of lava. And uh, it's just astounding film. 
It's my number 11. It almost cracked my list, so I love It's a great one. Oh, yeah. really also a fan well. in my 11 through 20. Yeah. Michael, what about your films that only made your list? Only mine. Yes. Just mine. My five include compartment number six, director and co-screenwriter Yuho Kosmanin's film, and he's adapting a novel, relocating the destination in the, in the novel from Mongolia to set in uh, northwest most Russia. It's about a Finnish archaeology student and her trip to the port city of Murmansk, which is north of the Arctic Circle, Arctic Circle, sorry, to see some recently discovered petroglyphs and her sleeping compartment made is this really, really obnoxious, drunk Russian miner who's trying to find some work up there. Um, uh, if you ever wanted to remake this in America, it'd be set in fracking country in North Dakota probably. But um, it's really kind of a wonderful uh the closest American parallel would be one of the one of the Linklater before sunrise, before sunset pictures. But it's uh, it's it's just great, and I'm really I'd almost forgotten about it. Went back, checked the list, and I was like, yes, that film I remember, and I really, really loved. You know, I hate to use the cliche, the journey it takes you on. You know, so I like that a lot. I e- love that there's two Finnish films on this list. Give it up for Finland. Finland is killing it right now. <laughs> I know. No Kurosaki this year, but there you go. Uh, EO is on my my, my list too. Uh, uh, the Donkey's Tale uh, from Jersey Skolomowski and his producer and co-writer wife Eva Pioskowska. Um, wonderful, wonderful, w- really amazingly kind of sustained variation on the Brisson film Oh Hazard Balthazar. Um, so I, I, you know, saw it late, still still on the list. Let the Little Light Shine was probably the best, certainly the best local documentary I saw. Kevin Shaw's film about the Chicago Public Schools saga of how the National Teachers Academy in the South Loop, a K-8 through school, prevented being converted into a high school by some sort of below-board CPS machinations. Great story of grassroots activism. And, um, yeah, really, I saw that at uh, True False in last March, and that was an incredible audience experience. And they didn't have personal experience with the neighborhood or the schools and they just it just played like a son of a bitch so turning red uh probably this my second favorite animated picture mm. of the year best pixar for me at least since inside out directed by domishi a really imaginative allegory i think about a 13 year old toronto girl's puberty and how her intense emotional swings the stuff of any and all adolescent cases right uh in her case turning her into a giant red panda. Uh, it's worth looking up, just a Google search on Turning Red, just to say, uh, just to find out what the number one questions about it are, which is like, is Turning Red about periods? You know, <laughs> you know things like that. So it's like, well, uh, yes, no, maybe not really. Uh, just see the movie and, you know, pull pull whatever, uh, whatever allegory or metaphor you want out of it, because it all makes sense. And it's really just kind of a great experience. The Woman King is my favorite I guess, straight-up popcorn movie this year. I think it's better than Black Panther 2. Uh, I liked it more than Top Gun Maverick, though I like Top Gun Maverick okay. This was director Gina prince Bythewood's freely fictionalized account of the female warriors led here by Viola Davis fighting on behalf of the West African kingdom of Dahomey. I liked it. I wish it had gotten a bigger audience, but, you know, pandemic. Kimmy, Steven Soderbergh's film written by David Cope. A great update, I think, maybe the only really sort of fully sustaining update of Hitchcock's Rear Window about a Seattle tech worker played by Zoe Kravitz who's going through some of the conversations and interactions. Her company's new AI helper, like Siri, but a little more sophisticated, is pulling off the customer base, and she seems to hear what could be a murder in progress. Um, uh, What does it run, 86 minutes? 
I mean, it's yeah, like it's, tight. it's like a pre-code pace, you know. I mean, it's it's really good. It's just it's just a great reminder that Soderbergh is still kind of showing us how it's done, and you know, shooting in a pandemic and making the most of a pandemic story without just making a movie that will basically be out of date next week. A really fine performance from Kravitz as well, who was also very good in the Batman. I thought earlier in the year, you're definitely not alone in appreciating Kimmy. I'm certainly with you, Michael, but. I don't know anybody who appreciates Steven Soderbergh's Kimmy more than the person we're about to hear from. Hey, Adam and Josh. This is Mitchell Beaupre, senior editor at Letterboxd and co-host of our podcast, The Letterboxd Show and Weekend Watchlist, calling in with my favorite film of the year. There are a few that I'd love to shout out, uh, like Nope, After Yang, Crimes of the Future, Broker, St. Omer, Emily the Criminal, Decision to Leave, and indeed, My Sweet Lyle Lyle Crocodile. Good movie, everybody. But I've been banging the drum for one film in particular since it first dropped on HBO Max in February, and it still remains my very favorite of 2022, and that is Steven Soderbergh's Kimmy, a, a modern update on one of my favorite subgenres, those nervy paranoia thrillers like The Conversation and Blowout. Kimmy follows Zoe Kravitz as she goes down the rabbit hole to try and uncover a conspiracy after she... Here's something she wasn't supposed to recorded by uh, the like eponymous Alexa-like device. The film follows some of the traditional narrative beats of this type of film, but what most stood out to me along with the expected excellence of Soderbergh's craft was the uniqueness of its main character. Um, without explicitly stating it, through her behavior, a couple of key conversations, and a camera lingering a little extra long on a keychain, it becomes clear that Kravitz's character, Angela, is on the autism spectrum, and I was remarkably impressed by the film's deft and respectful representation of its autistic lead. It really, um, I think, pushed boundaries beyond the typical on-screen portrayals of autism, understanding that it's a much broader spectrum than most media would lead you to believe, and it did so by rooting us so firmly in her perspective of the world, not just in her day-to-day -day kind of isolated confinement within her apartment but also there's a sequence later about halfway through the movie where she steps into the outside world and the sort of sensory overload that she experiences is implanted on the audience itself and i think that the way that soderbergh captures this with sound and image is so effective And most importantly, Kimmy never has any interest in being a quote-unquote autism movie, but rather a riveting conspiracy thriller where the main character happens to be autistic, and we are rooted directly into that POV. And as an autistic person myself, that is honestly exactly the kind of representation I find most validating. Um, plus, honestly, it's just a hell of a fun ride. Um, so, I mean, if people haven't, it's been, it's been around for a year. I've been... All over, everywhere, drumming up the support for Kimmy. But if people haven't checked it out yet, uh, I would say give Kimmy a look if you've seen it and are forgetting about it in your like end of year shout outs. Just remember how much Kimmy rolls. All right. Thanks so much, as always, for another great year of film spotting. Shout out for all the awesome new stuff that's been coming on the Family Premium Plus feed. And I look forward to seeing everyone at the next trivia spotting night in 2023.
Thank you, Mitchell, for that very personal and very insightful take. And Josh, I'm sorry, we've gone on so long, we're just out of time. <laughs> I bet. We, actually, we, we, can't, <laughs> we can't get to your final choice. I guess we'll have to cut off your uh, four other choices as well. You know huh? what? I could live with that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, what, you know, Adam, what is a top 10 list at the end of the year if it isn't your own personal virtual reality experience? Mm-hmm. We get to <laughs> construct and control our movie experience of the previous 12 months, we get to pick out the furniture we like, the outfits we want to wear, the cars we want to drive. The haircut, the accent. You, whatever you want to do, Adam, yep. you can do it. And in my virtual reality top 10, I have don't worry, darling. Ugh. This is not a stunt. <laughs> this is for real. Right, I fully believe right. in this pick. Right. I even rewatched the film a second time just a week or two ago to make sure I could back this up just for myself. I don't care what you all have to say. So I could justify it to myself. But this has always been one of your strengths. You think you can back up your points. (laughs) And and I always convince myself, Michael. (laughs) It's funny how it works that way. I mean, I was just delighted. I was delighted by the sauciness of this thing. That's what overwhelmed me again in a fun way. The filmmaking verb, yes, the costumes, the production design, the performances, I think, are really strong. The ironic use of mid-century pop is so enjoyable. Um, Now, just because it's on my top 10 list, does that mean I'm going to answer all of your questions (laughs) about the plot and the logistics? Josh isn't taking questions at this time. No, I am taking no questions. I cannot cannot do that. I didn't care the first time all that much. I might have said, oh, that's interesting. That's curious. But I didn't obsess over it. Didn't bother me the second time either. I, I think if... We subjected most speculative science fiction to the sort of interrogation that Don't Worry Darling was subjected to. See, Probably 90% of those movies. I was going to let you off the hook, Josh. Would not hold up either. I was going to let you off the hook, but then that pre No questions, but that, Adam. But that supposes then that I and others like me have some other agenda with the film. I and we don't. I didn't say that at all. So I said for some reason, some other these questions, these interrogations, let, let's just say a lot of glitches are in a lot of matrixes. For some reason, this is the movie where none of that was allowed. So, yes, I do like this now. I legitimately enjoyed it the first time. And I do think it's going to hold up. I think it's going to look better a couple of years from now. I mean, we're we're not that far away from like Stepford Wives being a game that Mark Zuckerberg is going to try to force us to play in the metaverse, right? And so a movie that is, you know, not warning us about that. This isn't really all that serious, but interestingly toying with it in ways that I found provocative. That's why it landed at my, well, number, easily, side, my easily, number nine slot, You're easily Michael. provoked. I'm not going That's crazy. It, was, it seemed provocative because you were easily provoked. Perhaps, the Steven Soderbergh perhaps. film I want to see is the one where – he captures and amplifies the audio of Michael groaning when you said, don't worry, darling, and the cringe look on Mariah's face. That, that's what I want. <laughs> now, that I will would say, be my number one okay. film of the year of all time, actually. I, I will say, just uh, not, in, not in Josh's defense, but just, just for your – Adam has called me and said, I have, I have an agenda. <laughs> I do. So, <laughs> and yes. I need to get you on board. I'm certainly yes. not anti-Florence Pugh. <laughs> Let's just establish that. Okay. So, yeah, I have four films make my top ten that have not come up yet on this episode. I'll start at number 10. I don't know. Does anyone remember that someone named Steven Spielberg made a pretty good film this year? Really good film. The Fablemans. I I certainly would have pushed for it earlier 
in this show to get attention when we were talking about Nope and everything, everywhere, all at once, considering that it's Spielberg and the general positive response that it got if I hadn't waited until about 12 hours ago to cement my top 10 list. Mariah, what do you think of Fear? Oh, I did like it. Yeah, good. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Number 12 for me. Oh, okay. okay. Right. So yeah. top some, 11 through 20 for me. Consensus again here, a film that I do really think has some of the most memorable images and scenes of the year. My number nine, I'm going R, R, R. <laughs> Ram Charan's mustache and actually everything else about him reminds me of Anton Walbrook. So that's a good thing. But imagine the life and death of Colonel Blimp in terms of this expansive story of war and duty and friendship, but also featuring these incredibly intricate and insane fight scenes and, and action offs. sequences dance and offs. dance numbers. Yeah. And lions right? I mean, and tigers. I, Wait, are there lions? Maybe not lions. Definitely I, tigers. Yeah. I, there, there are lots of tigers and lots of other animals in RRR. I truly did not come here to denigrate James Cameron, but I'm just going to say that everyone writing into my comments on Letterboxd Proclaiming the visual brilliance of Avatar The Way of Water. This is the visual spectacle of 2022 mm. that also delivered actual emotional stakes. <sighs> See, this I was with you. One. And the reason RRR is not so high is it's just too much CGI mm. that looks like CGI I, I cared, for me. Compared I cared so to much more about these characters. The way, well, that's that's com that's not what you're claiming, though. You're talking I'm about I'm the emotional stakes. No, the I'm claiming imagery. emotional stakes plus the spectacle. That combination is what makes it special. And it's the combination lacking in the way of water. A little, Josh, too, Josh, little too much CGI. Josh, Josh, when that happens, just say, I don't like your face. <laughs> <laughs> Number seven, the first time in the history of the show, and maybe the last time, because how often could this happen? I've got a father and son making a top 10 list. The father getting the slight advantage, a slight nudge up. Jafar Panahi comes in at number seven, his son, number eight with Hit the Road. But Jafar Panahi with No Bears. This this filmmaker and, and this film, I mean, if you look at the description of it, it, it says... It follows two parallel love stories in which the partners are thwarted by hidden, inevitable obstacles, the force of superstition and the mechanics of power. Yeah, but it really is also about this filmmaker, Panahi himself, who's oppressed by his own government and forbidden to make films. And this notion of these two parallel love stories, he's the fulcrum of both of them being this filmmaker in exile in this border town who's trying to direct one of those films via Skype, basically. And then in the other one, he's being asked to turn over photos that he may have taken of a couple that would prove their relationship. And that goes against the traditions of the village. You just keep wondering how Panahi is going to make with all of these restrictions imposed on him. How is he going to keep making vital art? And you see no bears and it just reinforces that the guy's creativity and imagination and, and his skill as a filmmaker, it just can't be thwarted. And finally, at number six, I have a film, you know, Mariah, now you're going to give me cringy faces because you didn't like my tar pick. You didn't really like my decision to leave pick. And I know based on your letterbox <laughs> review that you really don't like my number six choice of Lucas Don'ts. Close winner of the Grand Jury Prize at the Cannes Film Festival, the second film from the Belgian director. I've talked a lot about mysteries, and this is about the mysteries of childhood relationships and coming of age, and it's about forgiveness. And I think it could have been cloying and melodramatic and instead is really subtle and incisive. And my favorite thing about it is the cinematography and the editing. It's not entirely, but most of it is composed of 
these very close shots of these characters or what these characters are seeing, these two young boys at the core, two 13-year-old best friends who go off to school, seems like they've got a bond that can't be shaken, and there's some shaking. Medium shots, medium close-ups, close-ups, but it never feels claustrophobic because of the grace with which the camera moves and tracks these characters, especially following them as their kids playing out in fields and they're riding their bikes. And the, the camera just aligns our perspective with these kids in a way that I found very moving. And I, I know you feel terrible that well, we have I to will, rush through this, Mariah. I will say that I did appreciate <laughs> that one of the characters played the oboe because I played the oboe for 10 years. And so so, so. did my wife, an you, oboe player. You know what? They're out there. They exist. <laughs> they are out there. Okay. We have one final voicemail, another special friend of the show who's got a pick that is an outlier and that it has not come up at any point in this gigantic episode. Let's hear from Melissa. Hi, film spotting. Melissa Tamanja here from the Pickford Film Center in Bellingham, Washington, calling in with my favorite film of 2022. So many films I adored this year, but I keep coming back to the film that I found most emotionally, beautifully devastating. And that is Terrence Davies' Benediction. Davies is a filmmaker who honestly never fails to break my heart into little pieces, but I'm never quite sure exactly how he accomplishes it, in spite of the fact that his films do frequently focus on these isolated, tragic figures, figures that are often trapped in a time or a place that rejects them. And this film about poet Siegfried Sassoon is no exception. Siegfried's Sassoon's life was indeed tragic. He fought in a war he didn't want to fight and then followed his conscience, spoke about it, and was punished in that speaking. He fell in deeply in love with a beautiful soul, a fellow poet who died brutally young in the war. He was a gay man at a time when that identity was deemed illegal. He buried a woman who, however kind, could not, of course, make him happy. And then towards the end of his life, he fled to the Church of England for refuge and found no refuge. What could be more tragic in that narrative? But while Davies does do extraordinary things with the story, the narrative, and, and even the narrative structure, alternating, for example, between past and present timelines and creating this profound sense of how a person's past is always tragically in their present, it isn't really in the narrative alone that the cinematic experience of heartbreak comes. I think it's somehow in Davies' use of images themselves, which in their essence, the the framing, the lighting, the camera movement, have this almost unbearable tenderness and beauty. And perhaps it's that very beauty, a, a kind of beauty that can only be found in cinema, paired with the tragedy of character and narrative, that the film's emotion finds its power. Give me your hand, my brother. Search my face. Look in these eyes, lest I should think of shame. For we have made an end of all things base. We are returning by the road we came. Your lot is with the ghosts of soldiers dead. And I am in the field where men must fight. But in the gloom I see your laurelled head, and through your victory I shall win the light. However Davies accomplishes it, Benediction rendered me totally emotionally raw, by the end, but also wishing it could go on forever. So it had to be the film of 2022 for me. 
Benediction, actually, the last film I watched in preparation for this top 10. I agree, it's, it's very good. And Jack Loudon, this is the first time, I thought it was the first time I'd ever seen him on screen. He was kind of a revelation. And then I looked up his filmography and realized that he's the pilot Collins, the pilot who's not Tom Hardy in Dunkirk, who has to crash in the ocean and get out of his plane. I think he's really wonderful in this film, and I appreciate that choice. You can find all four of our top 10 lists at filmspotting.net. Just click on lists. Some other fun stuff to check out while you're there. Michael, Josh, and I offered up our top 10 greatest films of all time, and we pulled the Film Spotting family to get their top 100 greatest films of all time. You can also check out our Sight and Sound companion where we discovered that I think 41 or 42 of the top 100 films that came up in that poll have been discussed in detail on film spotting. So if you're thinking about exploring some of those films and want someone to help you out, maybe nudge you along and give you hopefully an insight or two, we've got that available at filmspotting.net slash lists. And speaking of the film spotting family, there is still time to give the gift of film spotting. Sign up for your own membership or buy one for a cinephile in your life by visiting filmspottingfamily.com. Our family members get bonus content, access to every episode, exclusive opportunities, and more. This was fun. And Josh, it has come to an end. If you want to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Letterboxd, Adam is at Filmspotting. I'm at Larson on Film. Over at Filmspotting.net, you can vote in the current Filmspotting poll. It's an important one. We're asking what film should win the 2022 Golden Brick Award. Also on our website for show t-shirts or other merch, just go to Filmspotting.net slash shop. Out in limited release this week. Corsage with Vicky Creeps as Empress Elizabeth of Austria and Sarah Polly's new one, Women Talking. On digital, people can finally see Glass Onion, or at least widely see Glass Onion, a Knives Out mystery that does come to Netflix here on Friday the 23rd. Roald Dahl's Matilda the Musical is also on Netflix as of Christmas Day. In wide release, you can see the Whitney Houston biopic directed by Casey Lemons. It's I Want to Dance with Somebody. Sam Mendes' Empire of Light is expanding. And yes, you can see Mariah's number one film of the year, Damien Chazelle's Babylon. Our next film spotting, well, all we know for sure is that we will be in front of an audience in Brooklyn on Saturday, January 14th, Bell House in Brooklyn, to put a cap on the year officially our favorite scenes of the year, our favorite music moments, moving moments, etc. Some special guests for that. You'll hear that episode then the following Friday. In between, I'm going to be doing some traveling. As I said, going to London. We're going to take a little bit of a break. Not exactly sure when the next film spotting episode is going to come out before that live show, but we'll probably come up with something. Maybe a bonus show for film spotting family members, something like that. So we'll have to see. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hogren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistants are Betty Lavendero and Veronica Phillips. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. Thank you so much, Mariah. Thank you, Michael, for joining us for another great roundtable. Before you go, please tell listeners where they can find some more of your work, Mariah. Oh, my God. Um, Where can you find my work? I I guess... I used to tell people to go to Twitter, but I've kind of stopped using it mm. that much. So I guess my Substack is probably the best place. It's oldfilmsflicker.substack.com. Every Friday, I do a guide that includes six to eight 
films directed by women to watch, some new wa- new new releases, new to streaming, and then just picks that I find on various places like Canopy and Criterion Channel and Tubi and Netflix and pretty much anywhere that you can watch a movie. I'm going to be launching, I don't know if it's going to be monthly yet or weekly or what, but um, I have discovered that people enjoy me talking about silent film um, (laughs) because it really is not a well-known area of film for a lot of people. And there really are lots of new releases and and Criterion Channel has quite a few and YouTube and people don't know where to start past, you know, Keaton and Chaplin and and Lloyd. So uh, I will be launching that aspect of the newsletter soon uh, as well. And then I write for RogerEbert.com the most, but I also write for The Playlist and occasionally IndieWire and Fulcher and a few other places. But eventually all those links end up on the Substack. So really that's the best place to find everything. Very cool. How about you, Michael? Well, it's, it's also been just fantastic to read you so many places and to have you in town. I mean, it's just it's, it's improved the whole scene. So. I've really enjoyed being here and meeting everybody and going to like the CFCA party and and Brian. I just really want to shout out Brian because he is Brian Tallarico. Brian Tallarico is. You know, he sometimes he'll say no, but it's the nicest no you can ever get. <laughs> and when he says yes. Sign of a good editor. Yeah. And when he says yes, it's because he knows you're super passionate about something and he'll let you do the craziest things. And, and I just I really appreciate that. Uh, I'm at chicagotribune.com slash movies. And I think I, I'd just like to add 50 or so titles I'm looking forward to in 2023 <laughs> to this show. Uh-huh. Don't you well, think? It needs I'm sure bonus you content. I thought I was getting that stretch yeah. movement with, from Joe in the booth. Like, stretch it. We need more. No. But anyway, that's you know the usual place. Also on the radio over at WFMT.com uh, or WFMT uh, 98.7 uh, every Saturday at 9 a.m. I do a segment on soundtrack. Wonderful, as always, to have you, Michael and Mariah. Thank you. Thank you both. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening, and happy holidays, everyone. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.